but everyone's going crazy and it's kind of funny. Um, but the other one, it, it definitely reminds me of those multi-level marketing schemes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Like, but what you have said, what you said on some of the podcasts makes exact sense. Like this is not a scam, but it's going to attract like a lot of scams and a lot of scam artists. Hello and welcome back to the Bitcoin Cash podcast following Bitcoin Cash on its rise to global reserve currency. This is episode number 21, Satoshi Pyramid and Mining Incentives. Today's Friday, the 4th of June, 2021. I'm here with Oliver, who's just told me that he's a Zoogler, which I didn't know what that is, but that's spelled X-O-O-G-L-E-R, and it means ex-Googler. So this is the heavyweights of the tech industry we have on the, <laughs> on this show you know i had a had a good day at work but getting to the end of the day i was really feeling it a lot of a lot of bugs to fix this week not a lot of uh, new feature devs so kind of some more of the boring stuff but you know got got, got through it right uh, here talking about bitcoin cash so best best time of the week pretty much um so yeah, how long how long have you been in uh, cryptocurrency, or where did you find out about uh, Bitcoin, or what's what's your story in that regard? Yeah, so I remember hearing about um, Bitcoin at least in twenty fourteen, around the time I left Google, or twenty twenty thirteen Christmas, because I remember going to New York and seeing an ATM there, you know, that mm. one of the Winklevoss or Winklevi had put um, in New York, and. Uh, I remember looking at that and going like, oh, wow, like Bitcoin's something's mm. happening here. That was Christmas. And then what did you get sucked into it straight away? Or like some people see about it, they hear about it three, four, five times, and then they finally, you know, get on board after like two years later, or were you just straight into it? Yeah, honestly, like, yeah, for a couple of years, I was just following in the media and you know, it's an amazing story. We won't go into that. Um, but uh, just just following that and all the Silk Road stuff, and then finally read the white paper, and then that was my sort of the thing that got yeah, me. Yeah, and now you've been uh, big big on it, right? You've uh, made a web series that uh, I've seen a bit of. It's it's pretty good, so we'll put a link to the description as well in that. So preaching the word, spreading the education of of blockchain to the world, right? That's right. Um, but uh, I'm especially, you know, that, that one's definitely from a sort of, it's aimed at people who are non-technical but want to understand how it works in like a clear, simple, no-nonsense way. None of the sort of made-up stuff that, you know, the journalists Yeah, like I think there's, there's definitely a surfeit of that information because it's so, Bitcoin has just been explained to so many people so many times in so many different ways that... Like, I think it's hard for people the first time they hear about it, you literally hear about it five times and every time it's like, okay, they always say there's 21 million coins, but then sometimes they say there's not, there's only 19 million. And then sometimes they say it's on all these computers. And then sometimes they're telling me about Ethereum. And then sometimes, you know, so you, you really need to do your own research and find, yeah, some sort of clear explanation on YouTube or something like that. Because if you see any of these like news snippets or something, that's the only thing you know about crypto be confused as all hell watching that like the fifth different explanation which doesn't really make any sense uh you know so yeah i think people really need to get to the heart of the matter with uh, more informative uh content but they have to be proactive about seeking that out right so i think that's a big step in people's journey into cryptos when they realize wait i need to understand what's what the hell's going on here and i'm obviously not getting the real story 
uh, and then they go out of their way and like look into it, right? So uh, I've seen that. I've seen that pattern a lot. Right. So first thing, as always, the price a little bit down this week for Bitcoin Cash, six hundred and seventy-four US dollars, uh, and one BTC currently buys fifty-five Bitcoin Cash. So as far as the crypto industry goes, are you a price fanatic? Are you watching it all the time? Do you not care? Do you just YOLO in your money? How do you, <laughs> how do you handle it? For me, no, not interested in the sort of casino side of it at all. Um, and that's something that I really want to tell people is that, you know, if, if you're into that, that's great. Do that. Um, if, if that sort of turned you off, you know, the first time you heard about Bitcoin and now you're taking another look, um, there's a lot of interesting stuff to learn that, that's not about like what happened in the last minute with the price. Yeah, I mean, it goes up, it goes down, it goes all around, right? It's a bit of a constant sort of, uh, yeah, casino, exactly as you say. And we're, exactly. It's going to be a bit of a theme in this episode, I think, uh, in terms of the financial speculation. You know, uh, this show is not really, you know, trying to give people trading advice or following, you know, the latest hype or whatever. There's a million... Uh, channels like that already but it, it's kind of the most insane story that the so there's it's such a combination right there's there's no way it could be any other way really crypto is just born in this crucible of financial speculation kind of pouring in money which a lot of it gets wasted or traded off or go you know people going bust or making millions or whatever and then underneath it all, there's just this actual like revolution going on. And so, yeah, that's another reason that people looking at it from the outside, it's just impossible to figure out <laughs> what's going on at any one time, because even if they take, you know, a couple months off and then they look back at it, it's like completely different. There's no uh, rhyme or reason to it seemingly. So yeah, every, every week I check in on the uh, Bitcoin cash uh, transaction count. So Recently, it has been on a bit of a dip, and funnily also, so was BDC, but BDC seeming to recover a bit uh, faster, so they're, you know, BCH still got a bit of uh, catching up to do in terms of spreading out the adoption uh, around to everyone. So let, let me ask you then on, on this uh, graph, if you have any thoughts about it, and also how sort of regularly do you use cryptocurrencies now, you know, if you're, you're big on them, right? Yeah, so just looking at this graph, it looks that it looks like um, you know Bitcoin's basically maxed out, right? Like there's so many, there's only so many transactions it can do. So the price is pretty high. If I mean, basic economics says, right? If the volume drops by a little bit, then the price should drop, and therefore that should stimulate a bit more, more like more transactions. And I think that's what you're seeing there. Whereas Bitcoin Cash, like the transactions, so cheap. I don't think it's so dependent on the price. I don't think it's near its maximum. Yeah, right? so uh, BCH has way more sort of yeah upside. But if we zoomed out this graph, Bitcoin BDC basically capped at about four hundred thousand transactions, and every time it's in a weird situation because for for a network to grow, a financial monetary network, a crypto network to grow, you want to have more transactions. You want to have more people trading with it. You know that's pretty obvious, right? But because it is uh, capped in that way, the sort of the network benefits when people stop using it, because if it's at capacity, the only lever is that the fees increase and then less people use it. So it naturally brings it down, kind of like you were saying. But then, so then when the uh, price drops off, you see some 
people who are big on BDC, they suddenly start like, look, the fees are low, we're fine. And it's like, well, it's only, you know, because you're going in reverse, right? Less people are using your network, uh, at, you know, for whatever reason, right? There can be all sorts of reasons for that. And now that's suddenly a win. But then if there's more people using the network, that's always a win. So it's sort of trying to like slice the bread and have it, you know, both ways kind of thing. Uh, whereas with, yeah, BCH is just sort of like the more the better since the end game is to try and suck up as many transactions as possible. And ultimately, if you have all those, you know, 0.1 cent fees, they, you know, can add up to a substantial uh, mining reward, right? So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see BCH is obviously much uh, less used but not as less used as the as the sort of price differential would would suggest and we had this is the other graph i check in on every week is the uh, usd sent across the network which i also find a fascinating story to sort of follow where uh btc had sort of like well bch had sort of flipped uh btc it was actually for one or two days in here it was doing more uh, USD sent across the network, despite being so much smaller, you know, not having the brand name effect and everything. Uh, and then BTC just like shot off like a rocket and hit some all time highs at 75 uh, billion cent in a day while while BCH sort of collapsed off a bit. But BCH in the last I mean, BTC in the last week has just plummeted down to back under uh, 20 billion, you know, only 15 billion or so. So it's really only marginally ahead of uh, Bitcoin Cash in that 10 or 11 billion range. So it's just crazy watching this graph to see how high the variability is in the BTC uh, cent. You know, it can be as high as more than 70 billion a day and it can be as low as nearly like 10 billion. And to me, that sort of indicates that there's so much more of the uh, fluctuation is, is just based on speculation or, you know, hype in the market. Whereas with the BCH, it is, it is still obviously hype and it does fluctuate a bit, but it's also kind of growing this solid base underneath it because of that regular commerce that people are, are able to trade uh, with it for. But that's just my uh, analysis. Do you have any, does anything jump out, you know, on this graph to you? No, no, that, that seems like a good summary. Yeah, so, I mean, because ultimately the number of transactions can be quite misleading, right? Like we saw before, BCH did have, you know, more transactions than BDC, but there was so much uh, one-cent tips flowing around on noise.cash, but it was still, you know, maybe only 30 or 40% of the actual USD cent. Uh, so the real point at which uh, BCH is really going to start crushing BTC, in my opinion, is going to be when BCH is doing more USD cent per day and more transactions per day, because then people will start cluing in and looking at that story and just saying, look, it's just a more efficient network, like bigger blocks was the better idea. Or at least that's my, uh, that's my theory. And, and we'll see, maybe it will happen that way. Maybe, maybe it won't. But, you know, since the start of this uh, podcast where we, we had here, I don't know whether you could say that BCH is getting closer or not. I feel like it is, um, but you know, that's, that's a matter of perspective, I guess. Well, right. So we've also, got. There's no way to know with like which of those transactions, like what those transactions yeah, mean, right? Yeah, exactly. Like what? What do you call that? Um, the company that will shuffle around your coins so you can get some out. Uh, of well, so they have like Cash Fusion on on BCH. That's not a company, but there's other like coin mixing services on BDC as well. Uh, uh, coin yeah. mixes. Yeah. So, like, 
yeah, I mean, you, you can imagine like if you want to mix your mix your coin, that might make sense to switch it into B, like in, into one of those, and then mix it around, do a whole bunch of transactions. You don't know how many transactions are like that, and how many are just, you know, Bob wants to buy a pizza, sweet ten some money. Yeah, exactly. There's a really high, like these these st- stats are the best we've got, and it is sort of nice that we do have them. You know, relative to like a fiat currency where you actually. Nobody has any idea. Like people know, okay, the currencies are trading around, but there's no way to see like the USD, how many trades were made per day. Nobody has any idea. Obviously, yeah, the the crypto stats are, uh, you know, they're indicative, but they're not like necessarily accurate or or conclusive really is the word I'm looking for. Um, So yeah, you know, but we sort of make do with the best we've got. So (laughs) it takes a bit of reading the tea leaves, you know. That's kind of how I think of it. Yeah, but you're absolutely right. Like, no one knows what's going on with fiat because if, like, if I send money to you in Wells Fargo, like, only Wells Fargo and you and me knows about yeah, that. exactly. I mean, it's all spread out, yeah, enough between all the different banks and the Fed and cash transactions, yet nobody really has any idea. So I've always found it very interesting. One of the reads that I got into crypto uh, was that growing up, I would read in the, in the paper about, uh, you know, the Reserve Bank in, uh, in Australia and then obviously the, um, you know, the Federal Reserve and all this sort of stuff. And it just struck me as very, like, sort of mystical, you know? It was kind of like, who are these people that just know the exact levers to tweak or something like that, you know, where you can look around and see trade going on at your local shop. Yeah, oh, I bought a chocolate bar. And you're thinking, who are these people sitting in their ivory tower that are just controlling the levers to the perfect amount? Like, what? That's nonsense, right? <laughs> I don't know. That's that, that. That was how I always sort of found it. So I've just thrown in this slide uh, at the last second for this show because I literally saw this on Twitter about uh, ten minutes before we started recording. And the story is that right now uh, in Miami in the United States, there's uh, a conference going on called Bitcoin 2021. And this is not like an annual event or anything that I I know of. Obviously, last year with the pandemic, I don't think there was a lot of conferences or anything necessarily. But somehow the Bitcoin community have got together and sort of set up this huge conference in Miami, which has hard to tell at this stage from just some Twitter posts how many people are there. But at, at the very least, thousands of people um, at this, at this kind of conference. And I'm, I'm very interested to observe this because in my mind, crypto is still quite small or, or it was, I sort of think of meetups back in the day, like in the 2014, 2015 era, there's all these videos of Andreas Antonopoulos or, or Roger Ver talking to crowds of people, you know, 50 or 100 people in a sort of warehouse or or something like that and everybody's sort of rapidly listening in. But it's it, it's kind of like this underground resistance movement type of vibe and they're talking about, we're going to change the world and this and that, you know, uh, where, you know, we're coming to take out central banks and banking the unbanked and freedom for everyone and all this sort of stuff. And it's just a complete contrast to now five or six years later with this uh, clip. So I will edit in the clip right here for everybody to take a, a listen to. But basically, <laughs> you and I have already had a, had a listen to it. And it's absolutely crazy because it is like this tweet that I've got here says, once again, these scenes from Bitcoin 2021 are a repeat of the Las Vegas mortgage conference in the big short. Red flags, red flags everywhere. <laughs>
watching it really made me think how, how true that is, that it's this kind of like every scene you've ever seen from a movie where there's some kind of scammy conference and somebody gets up and starts preaching to the the masses. Like there's a scene of, um, what's his name? Tom Cruise in Magnolia, right? That's another famous one of those. Or The Wolf of Wall Street or um, The Big Short. They all have these scenes where the person gives up and gives their big pitch and there's kind of pounding music in the background, you know, the big drums and they come at maybe some fireworks or something. There was no fireworks in this one, but they, you know, they walk out on stage and here we've got, uh, Max Kaiser, uh, who is a, been a long time, uh, Bitcoin proponent and a very avid BTC only proponent. He hates Bitcoin cash. He doesn't like altcoins, none of that stuff. And the same with, uh, Michael Saylor, the, you know, more recent entrant to the scene who, has been very uh, avid about his support for BDC and BDC only. And they kind of come out and you can hear the crowd all jeering to fire them up. And there's a bit of like, fuck Elon, you know, and we're not selling. It really, it's like reaching this fever pitch of the Bitcoin global cult where there's sort of this image of, of the two of these guys who are both very rich uh, coming out with their suits and like everybody here in Bitcoin, we're all getting rich together and, all this kind of stuff. And that's completely the opposite of the cryptocurrency message that used to be and still exists outside of uh, Bitcoin BTC in terms of, you know, like banking the unbanked, like helping to lift up the poor, like being being a community, but not a community in the sense of like some big financial scheme that we're all trying to get rich, but in the sense of we're a community that are really, you know, bringing a social revolution and we're opening opportunities up to people and stuff like that but it's just kind of this really weird like financial i don't know just watching it it just was amazing to me i, I don't know what, what do you think of this clip yeah i feel exactly the same it reminds me of two things one was steve former when he was running out on stage and going developers do you remember that like classic? No, Google is clip? that from one of the Apple uh, ones? Is that what you're talking about or Google? No, Steve, Steve Ballmer. Uh, oh, Microsoft. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's back from the maybe 90s or something, and he's he's screaming on stage, and every all the developers are getting really excited, but he just looks like a complete fool. But everyone's going crazy, and it's kind of funny. Um, but the other one, it, it definitely reminds me of those multi-level marketing schemes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it yeah. is. But what you have said, what you said on some of the podcasts makes exact sense. Like this is not a scam, but it's going to attract like a lot of scams and a lot of scam artists. Yeah. And and we're just seeing that because, uh, you know, to me, when Bitcoin Cash and BDC split, Bitcoin Cash kind of kept that vibe or that understanding that it is about, you know, spreading it to everybody and, you know, financial inclusion and stuff like that. And the Bitcoin crowd, especially once they had sort of cleared out everyone who was not, uh, you know, who was who was thinking more in that direction, they were free to just build on this, you know, an echo chamber, a community just builds on itself, uh, right? When you only have a limited group of people who have all won the same idea. And so then as more people came in, those people either drank the same Kool-Aid or they, you know, left, they went into other cryptos or they just thought cryptocurrency is not for me, right? And so the Bitcoin crowd has been growing more and more and more, but still maintaining this same kind of cultish vibe that we can see exactly here. And I made one of my episodes that I made was called the Bitcoin BTC 
bubble, I think, you know, Bitcoin was maybe like 50,000 or something like that. It was a bit higher than where it is now. And I just sort of said, look, this is not the same as all of the previous rallies where you could see there was a huge spike and everything. And each of those was built on more of the promise of Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash that is going to become the world currency and that everybody's going to be able to trade with and stuff like that. But nowadays, if you look on Twitter and you find some people who are big in the Bitcoin scene, it's this kind of stuff. It's like multi-level marketing hype. And they make these posts like oh, we had the segment, whatever it was last week, you know, a couple of weeks back about Bitcoin pizza, where they don't even accept Bitcoin for payments. Because why would you ever <laughs> want to spend a Bitcoin, even though they were celebrating the first ever spending of Bitcoin? And I saw there's one other guy, he had this picture where he, he had a picture of his new Visa MasterCard, like a debit card that he got, credit card or something, he got the Platinum Edition or some bullshit like that. And he was like, look what I just got, hashtag Bitcoin. And I was like, what are you talking about, mate? This is your Visa card. It just, you know. So it's. I think this is all going to end very badly, but it's just an insane quirk of history that kind of this is the way it's going down, I think. Which is the same that happened with when the internet first came out. This is all the exact same thing. Like back in like the early nineties, it was just like those nerdy tech people and the utopian guys, just like Bitcoin was when it was early. Yeah. And then got like um the people who were getting rich off pets.com. Yeah. And they all came in and they built up this huge hype and then it all, you know, came apart. A lot of people, you know, made or lost a lot of money, you know, the government started getting involved, all these things, and then well, I mean, obviously, we, then we got the the real internet came out the other side of that because right. in the crash, it just sort of cleaned the decks of all the people who, who couldn't hack it or who were building something that didn't have any value. And it sort of reset everybody's expectations back to how they needed to think about this new technology. But so everybody thought, OK, it's a bit of a bubble, but clearly there's something going on here. And I just get those exact same uh, vibes here. So. I mean, I'm happy for the BDC community that they're having their conference. I'm sure a lot of people are having fun networking with each other and so on and so forth. But just uh, from the outside looking at it, it it doesn't doesn't remind me of the the original Bitcoin at all. And it's just it's I think it's gonna <laughs> it's gonna end badly for. Uh, People yeah. getting fired up and we're never selling. And I mean, you do need some of that uh, financial toughness and, and mentality in order to, uh, you know, survive crypt- through crypto volatility in the long run. But it's just the all the soul has gone out of it in terms of we're going to be a, a revolution, you know, spreading, spreading peace and financial inclusion. And now it's just multi-level marketing. So, uh, and this is all going on right in the background of this story. It just came out as well that Russia is apparently going to be getting getting out of the US dollar uh, for a long time. People have sort of speculated about Russia and China particularly as having to use the US dollar, even though politically their interests would not be aligned with that. So there's often questions about are they you know, going to try and dump the dollar or whenever. I think there was a big story when China and and Russia started doing deals not in US dollars, you know, just using their own currencies and various other countries like Iran and, you know, people trying to sort of shift away from the petrodollar and then the US sort of trying to bully them back into it. So there's this kind of big story of these big entities in the world kind of jockeying for for position, right? So the new Russian reserves is apparently going to be 40% euros 30% yuan, 
20% gold, 5% British pound and 5% yen. So, I mean, I think that's actually a fairly sensible breakdown from a Russian geopolitical standpoint, but it, it just kind of begs the question of when crypto, which was going to be this sort of upstart that kind of came in to shake this up and that at some point Russia or China would sort of realize our currency is not going to be the global reserve, but maybe crypto is, and at least for us, that's better than the US dollar. Uh, but obviously BDC, who was going to be the flagship for that, has now headed off into the realms of being kind of unusable multi-level marketing scheme or something. So it's hard to see it kind of getting a groundswell of, of support that that finds its way into this de-dollarization. I, I, I don't know. Can I, can I interject here? What, like, what is there, can you um, give us an update? Maybe not all the listeners know, and maybe, I, maybe my knowledge isn't the best on this. What is a reserve currency, and what do you mean when you want when you say like Bitcoin Cash is going to become the world's um, current, uh, reserve currency? Like, does that mean that it's going to what we're going to governments are going to use to hold to back up their reserves? Is it going to be like the the trend, the thing we buy barrels of oil in, or is it going to be something that like everyone uses in every country to just buy, you know, a, a chocolate bar? Yeah. So for me, this is kind of interesting one, right? Because the reason I chose that sort of tagline for the show following Bitcoin Cash on its rise to global reserve currencies because a lot of the Bitcoin Cash stuff is kind of branded as like peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash and that kind of thing. And I didn't think that, that didn't really get to the heart of the vision to me. I think it's good. It's It does explain what's going on, but you could sort of hear like, oh, peer-to-peer -peer cash and you think, oh, okay, cool. So yeah, like maybe I could buy a hamburger with it or something like that, right? And I think that that's where Bitcoin Cash has its strong suit. And that's where I see it going, that it is traded every day on the street. But the point is, uh, or the sort of the grand vision is that if you have people doing those small trades on the street for hamburger as the network effect of a currency builds, well, then that snowballs into, um, you know, companies buying some and then governments buying some and banks and, you know, eventually world governments, right? And these kind of uh, that that was sort of the the progression that I envisioned when I got involved in in Bitcoin and what I think a lot of people who were involved at that time that's how they sort of imagined it. And since then, Bitcoin BTC after the split sort of went off and turned into this kind of like uh, digital gold. You know, that's their narrative, and that's fine because that sold it to some banks who feel like, well, we can hold some and sit on it. And maybe like in this uh, portfolio, we can see here, Russia, they're going to have their 20% gold. Well, maybe they could have 5% Bitcoin that they never ever send anywhere. They just buy it. So they feel they've got their stake and China does that and whatever. And however many Bitcoin transactions there are each day, it would be like a couple of huge banks sent, you know, settle up a few, <laughs> a few billion and a couple of major world banks sort of move it around right uh but the idea really for me is that 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 can't be independent of what people trade day to day because who on earth is going to be trading bitcoin cash with their friend or buying a pizza or whatever and then is going to go to the bank and say hey can you can i send you some of this bitcoin cash which i use all the time it's very useful to get some of your vault btc that is so expensive, the fees are so high, it's so unusable. Uh, why would you ever trade your Bitcoin Cash into Bitcoin and then sort of have to trade it out? Like people talk sometimes about having, oh, well, BTC is the savings account 
and BCH is the spending account. But it's not like that at all. And because once upon a time, there was just one Bitcoin and that was fine because you ultimately you want to save the currency that you spend, right? That's why people in the UK, they mostly have British pounds in their bank account because they can spend it everywhere, right? People in America, they have the US dollar because they can spend it everywhere. People in you know Australia have the Australian dollars because they can spend it everywhere, right? And so when I talk about the global reserve currency, I, I, I do want it to give people the sense that this will be the currency that everyone in the world uses from machines for micropayments to individuals, to corporations, to large banks and financial institutions, to governments, right? It will cover that entire spectrum, but it will start at the kind of grassroots level and grow up from there rather than BDC, which was doing that and then sort of got diverted off. So now, even like we're seeing with this Bitcoin 2021 Miami conference, how many people there do you think are just casually swapping Bitcoin? Probably not many. There'll be a lot of, there will be some, I'm sure, but there's probably going to be a lot more. Everybody <laughs> paying with US dollars to buy their beer and then all congratulating each other on how they're so smart that they've got Bitcoin, right? But not being being used as a as kind of a real currency, right? So that that's, does, does that explain it? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, like in the in the world right now, you know, we have the United States dollar is the reserve currency. And what does that mean? Well, it means the United States government is the biggest in the world. Therefore, they their currency is de facto kind of become the most popular currency. It's what most sort of international trade is done. And because of the network effect, if one you know, government is trading with another government, they might not even use their own currency. Maybe they use the US dollar since it's sort of neutral and they can, you know, both agree on the prices of things are set in dollars, right? The price of gold, the price of oil, the, you know, all those uh, commodity prices, even the Big Mac index, uh, to some extent, is kind of tethered to the dollar, right? In countries like Argentina and Venezuela, where their currency is a shambles or Zimbabwe, well, what do people use instead? They use the US dollar because they know that that's sort of reliable. And that's where Bitcoin Cash is, again, in my vision, maybe this is just crazy, but we'll see. I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably confident, let's say, that in 20 years time, that that's kind of the situation we're going to end up in, where Bitcoin Cash is obviously not controlled by any uh, government, but it will just be the financial underpinning for a huge percentage of, of the world trade, which you can use on the street and which governments use to settle up, you know, large debts among themselves. Uh, too. So yeah, I, yeah, I don't know how much you follow sort of global macroeconomics, but this is quite big if the Russian government is officially like, well, let's pick up a bit more gold and <laughs> get rid of a few dollars. All right, so we've got uh, this little bit of news that came out in the BCH uh, community this week, which uh, I know we'll, we'll get onto it. You can ask me uh, some questions about you had about Bitcoin Cash, but it was just sort of fortuitous that you sort of mentioned scaling might be part of that uh, question. And they there's a really good article uh, this week from this uh, user mtrix m t r y c z, who I might try and get on the podcast at some stage because um, they're a Bitcoin Cash developer and they do loads of really good uh, work and research into how how this could be feasible. Right, what I'm talking about where crypto uh, as a whole, but Bitcoin Cash is the sort of dominant force is used in transactions every day by every single person. 
that's obviously like millions, if not billions of transactions per day, right? And so people have always wondered for a long time, how is that going to be feasible? And that's why BTC kind of forked off and they became, you know, they had their sort of approach uh, in terms of sticking with one megabyte blocks and trying to make the Lightning Network work. Uh, that to date hasn't been really a roaring success. But for Bitcoin Cash, the approach was what Satoshi said at the original invention of Bitcoin, where he made several posts where the first question he ever answered uh, in the first email that somebody sent to him and said, how's this going to work at a, I think it was the first one ever uh, answered, where somebody said, yeah, but how's this going to work at a global scale? And he sort of said, look, it actually doesn't really hit a scale ceiling. Like um, the quote, I'd have to find the quote, but it was basically about uh, somebody said, well, you know, given the current constraints of the internet, we can't handle this. And he sort of replies and says, look, if you scale this up to a world size, it might be about the equivalent of streaming a couple of HD movies, which at the time wasn't feasible. But he said, look, this is going to take 10 or 15, 20, 30 years to get to that size. And because we know technology is improving at that stage, it won't be a big deal. And that's largely been proven correct, right? In the last 10 years, just as in the 10 years before that and before that and before that and before that, uh, storage capacity, processing power, cost of chips, you know, all these things improve uh, at a sort of exponential rate so that uh, even as people on board onto the internet and there's faster and faster waves, there's still always capacity for it. And so because the technology is improving underneath it at the same rate. And so in this uh, article here, we have this dev who did one gigabyte block. So right now Bitcoin has one megabyte, so a thousand times the size of that. And Bitcoin Cash has up to 32 megabytes, but this is one gigabyte blocks on a Raspberry Pi, which is, you know, under a couple of hundred dollars, um, which could do mean 345.6 million transactions per day on Bitcoin Cash, which is uh, about three times three and a half times the amount of transactions that are made in the US each day in, in 2019. So even right now with, you know, not a ridiculous cost, right? Anybody who can afford $250 could go out and get themselves set up with the gear to run a Bitcoin Cash node that could, at the, at the outer limits of what's possible now, do three and a half times as many uh, transactions as happen in the entire United States. So that's that's a pretty strong uh, vote of confidence that we're moving in the right direction to being able to handle handle the whole world trade, right? Right, right. But okay, so how do you know how this compares to like, for example, Visa or Mastercard? Yeah, they whenever they do these things, they I think it's sort of like the Visa uh, is about I think it's like a peak of seventeen hundred per second or something like that. Let's let's have a look here, Bitcoin. Scaling uh, visa, like this is the what people always do is this sort of uh, com comparisons. Here we go, the blockchain scalability one. So they have here we go, no crypto. Okay, well there's all the debate uh, that everybody um, has, but yeah, I don't have the statistics to hand, but I think it's something like seventeen hundred transactions per second. Is the yeah. Yeah, so let me see here, uh, 256, okay, right, so 
So today's nodes are perfectly capable of handing 32 megabyte blocks, roughly 240 transactions per second, and successful tests have been done with gigabyte blocks of 7,680 transactions per second. So I think I'm pretty sure I've read before that Visa is about averages about 1,700 to 1,900 uh, transactions per second, maybe. And it goes up to at the peak of that, it's like 40 or 50,000 if everybody's trading at once because I don't know, it's Black Friday or something. Um, so I think that that's kind of what we're talking about is that if you're scaling in a BTC focused way with three transactions per second, and that's your cap, and you're never going above that in terms of on-chain scaling, well, it's just not really going to work out unless you did have some mystical invention of the Lightning Network that somehow made it all work. But in terms of just scaling up the amount of uh, data, if you if you have the you know bandwidth to support it and storage space is not insanely expensive, which you know, as we've seen 15 years ago, right? Getting a one a one megabyte uh, floppy drive was like crazy stuff, you know? And now it's like, you can get terabyte hard drives, no problem. And in the future, it'll be petabytes or I don't even know what the one after petabytes is, right? So there's, there's definitely a lot of uh, info that I'm gonna need to uh, get, you know, on this. I, I've got some links uh, that you can read about on uh, on BitcoinCashPodcast.com, there's one uh, thing that I have here where a guy talks, here we go, terabyte blocks for Bitcoin Cash. So where this is uh, something you, you might want to uh, check out where the guy explains about having um, enough capacity for 10 billion uh, people for 50 transactions per human on Earth per day for less than the cost of one tenth of a cent of USD. This analysis assumes no further decrease in hardware costs and no further software breakthrough, only assembling existing proven technologies. So that would probably have uh, have some of the answers there to that that kind of uh, that kind of info. So you can do three transactions per second with Bitcoin and hundred with Bitcoin Cash. That sounds about right. So I'm recording. Th- 32 times as much or up to 32 times as much data on the Bitcoin cash um, chain, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you just need a lot of storage. But if you're writing one gigabyte blocks, you are creating an extra one gigabyte of data every 10 minutes, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's what that um, 10, that that one terabyte um, argument sort of uh, that, uh, whatever it's called, the, yeah, the one terabyte kind of goes into as to how like uh, the one, the bottlenecks are not actually in storage space, right? Because storage space gets faster, fast, <laughs> basically. Uh, things, when you, like relative to other parts of a computer system, like, you know, for instance, internet bandwidth speeds or things like that, right? We, you know, they, they improve, but they improve slower than storage space. Storage space gets better, you know, uh, a lot, a lot kind of quicker. So obviously there is a cost, and I have mentioned this on the other uh, episodes. To if you increase the cost of the of the amount of transactions and the storage costs and the internet speed costs and so on and so forth, that does mean that it costs more to run a node. And I'm not saying that you want to not have nodes or discourage nodes or anything like that. But it's more sort of an argument of uh, going wide rather than going tall, which is that if you have 10 million people using Bitcoin Cash, well, that's a lot of commerce. So then 
for businesses who want to accept uh, Bitcoin Cash, for them, if it costs, let's say, $100 a month to run a node or $1,000 a month to run a node, if you're Amazon or Google or Facebook, that's a rounding error, right? You don't even notice that. Uh, you're still going to run your own nodes and you're going to have the capacity to do that no no problem right um and but that only comes about those big companies are only incentivized to run the nodes if there's people trying to trade <laughs> with it right and they want it or even governments right they could run 50 or 100 nodes each tesla you know was running bdc nodes they're now trying to back away from bitcoin so i don't know if they're doing that or not anymore but that sort of proves the the model is that the end users on their devices, you, you know, you don't need them to be running a full transaction history of the entire blockchain in the same way that not everybody has an internet ISP in their house. You just have your device, you have your Wi-Fi connection, you connect to a, an ISP and that, you know, connects you onto the rest of the internet, right? And that was the original model of how Bitcoin was going to scale even in the white paper, right? Because there's, it's like section eight is called uh, simplified payment verification or simplified payment headers or whatever. Well, let me just pull it up right now. And uh, Satoshi, <laughs> even at, you know, at, the, at the original design already sort of explained that this was how it was gonna work. Um, here, simplified payment verifications. It is possible to verify payments without running a full network node. A user only needs to keep a copy of the block headers of the longest proof of work chain, which he can get by querying network uh, nodes until he's convinced he has the longest chain, blah, 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 blah. So basically, yeah, here we go. Um, businesses that receive frequent payments will probably still want to run their own nodes for more independent security and quicker verification. So even right from the original design, it was not... Uh, you know, sort of envisioned that every single user on the network would run a node, just that you need to have enough people running nodes that it doesn't uh, turn into obviously a system of central control. So you, it's really a question of how many nodes is enough. But in the Bitcoin Cash way of thinking, it's better to have 1% of 100 million people running a node than to have 10% of a million people. I mean, it's better to have a system that, that's useful rather than a system that's not. <laughs> yeah, that too. That, that, that does pretty much uh, sum it up as well. Because, yeah, the people, yeah, there's no point having, you know, in the Bitcoin model where people say, oh, but people won't be able to run their own nodes. Yeah, but people won't be able to trade it. And they aren't trading it, right? You don't see people just trading around Bitcoin. Even people who like Bitcoin are not... Like with Bitcoin Pizza, they're not just trading in, in Bitcoin. Why not? Because it's too expensive and it doesn't matter how many nodes they have. If it costs $5 a transaction, nobody's going to bother. Well, what is it? Is it at the moment it's like $5 per transaction? Well, right now, I think it's down to like 3 or $4, uh, but it so does, it, it's been as high as 60 right? Right, but so you can buy a Tesla with it. That's not a problem, but you can't buy a hamburger. Yeah, exactly. And as people... And if you can't buy a hamburger, then eventually you're not going to want to buy a Tesla, right? And that's what we've kind of seen in terms of uh, Elon Musk stopped accepting, uh, you know, um, Tesla, Bitcoin payments for Tesla. Why? Because it wasn't feasible, right? It's even if it does cost three or four dollars, uh, people were probably still using their MasterCard because that costs zero dollars. And if the network is unreliable, which it is, 
that you don't know, okay, I paid $3, that still doesn't guarantee you get into the next block because there's that limit and maybe somebody outbids you, then it's unreliable. Then you're complaining about getting a refund and then it's a huge hassle, right? So it should just be cheap and reliable. So, so Visa does charge 3%, I think, but if you get a reach, nothing, right? Mm. Well, Visa, yeah, Visa charges the fees on the merchant side, which is where the advantage of cryptocurrency is that uh, you want to incentivize the merchants by saying, look, it's no fee for the merchants and the fee is on the consumer side, but in the Bitcoin cash model, at least the fee is so low that there's a consumer you don't even notice, you know, if it is 0.1 cent that literally shows up on your bank balances, 0.00, right? It's effectively free. You don't even notice, you don't even think about it. So that's the kind of the, the model. So that then, yeah, for merchants, they can, uh, they can get an economic advantage by instead of paying 3% to Visa or 5% to PayPal or whatever to accept payments, they just 0% to accept crypto. But that needs a, like a critical mass of people that want to pay with crypto first, right? Which is why the game plan is to try and get as many consumers as possible yeah, interested in this idea and sort of create a bit of a social movement of people that are holding, you know, cryptos and willing to pay with them. Right. Can, can I jump in there and ask you, there's a couple of reasons why uh, Tesla might have stopped accepting that. Like I heard the official reason is it's not environmentally friendly. And you sort of, the reason you're giving is that like, you know, transaction fees, right? Or is that sort of the crux of it? Because I've, I've got another theory. Okay. What's your theory? Well, my theory is that maybe it's just a fucking hassle for them because you send money and like you send it to the wrong address and now you've just lost $50,000 or something. You send you, you, you know, send it there and they don't know who sent it. They like turn up, money turns up with the, in the transaction and then they have no idea who it is. Um, like how do you, what happens if like I try to send money and I'm late and then, and then the price of Bitcoin has gone up or down. So then they're going to have to either like ask for the extra 10, like a couple of thousand dollars or whatever. Maybe they're going to have to refund me money. Like I can just see so many things just being really manual that someone's going to sit there on the blockchain being like, who sent us this money? What Tesla are we sending them like? And just being an accounting nightmare. You think that could be part of it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly what it is, right? Is that in the Bitcoin cash way of things of doing things, people are surprised at how simple and quick and easy it is because I think and it's very unintuitive actually, but in one way, it's kind of intuitive where people hear about cryptocurrency and they think, okay, wow, it's this new sort of futuristic thing, but then they expect it to be really difficult. And then when, you know, if I uh, set it up with people, I get them to download a wallet at a meetup or something and I send them $1, they don't have to sign up. They don't have to provide any information, nothing like that. And it just, bing, it arrives like literally about as, you know, as fast as my phone can scan their phone. And, and everybody's like, wow, that was fast. That was that was crazy like that you know i've heard all about crypto and everything like that but in under you know one minute you can be trading crypto from having nothing but having a phone and being willing to download an app but on bdc that's not true at all it's the opposite where uh for on-chain payments because the fees are high and the network is unreliable they they can't accept those no confirmation trades because you never know if that transaction is actually going to get confirmed or if you paid the right fee or you know <laughs> on and on right, and on okay. right we've um with bitcoin cash you can be pretty confident that you're going to be in the very next block which is going to happen in the next 10 minutes right more or less yeah 
But it's even better than that, which is that uh, in the, again, it's in, it's in the white paper. Uh, it says it in here somewhere. I don't know if I'm going to be able to see it, but uh, here we go. But, uh, no, no, that's not it. Um, basically, Satoshi sort of outlined that the, here we go. Uh, uh, basically, it says somewhere in here, Da, 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 da. The payee needs proof that at the time of each transaction, the majority of nodes agreed it was the first received. So in the original uh, model for Bitcoin, all the nodes, they listen for transactions. And then if somebody spends a certain amount and somebody else tries to spend a certain amount, they ignore that second one. So getting there first is kind of good enough. You do have the blocks and all the confirmations uh, and all the mining right. and everything like that in case there is a conflict, but the default assumption is the first one is the real one. And then that's why, I, I, you know, so you can send on the Bitcoin cash network now or the Bitcoin network back in the day. And if it only takes about one to two seconds for your transaction to propagate around to everyone, like sending a text message, right? It can just zip around, it gets to everyone. And then at that point, if as long as your default is that the first one is good, then that's it, you're already pretty, so obviously not if you're trading $10 million, you might want to wait for a block or two to be sure, but for $50, $100, $1,000, you don't even bat an eyelid because it, it just always works. But if you were, if you were really, if you thought there was a genuine risk that someone was going to do a double spend attack on you, you'd want to wait like five or six. Yeah, right? exactly. But how many of those so that, scenarios are, are you really worried about, right? Like if I'm buying a sandwich, and it cost me $5 to buy this sandwich, there is nobody in the world who is going to set, like doing a double spend is not simple, right? You need to see exactly the transaction that is going on. You need to have some miners on speed dial who are running their hundreds of, you know, millions of dollars of mining equipment, have it all ready to go. I scanned the thing, they're waiting right there, send it off to the miner. Hey man, look, I know you've got your 20 million. Can you just put that like on hold for a second? Look, Jeremy's trying to buy a sandwich. <laughs> Let me just get this one into the block ahead of that. And what's the, what's the gain? Okay, you made $5. Like you're not gonna spend an hour of your $20 million hardware from buying, mining Bitcoin in order to run this attack against one specific person, right? You're just not gonna do it ever. Well, does it ever happen? This one, I'm kind of curious. Does it ever happen that two miners kind of add add blocks at a roughly the same time, and there sort of ends up a split chain, even if it's one block? Yeah, yeah, it, it does happen. It's it's fairly uncommon, but it does uh, it does it does happen. And the important the longest that it's happened, like how what's the longest split of a chain? I think it's really uh, besides the intentional ones, like when Bitcoin Cash forked off and stuff like that. I think it's probably wouldn't be more than maybe like three or so blocks. Like it, one block happens once in a while. It's called orphaning. Uh, sometimes like it would get to a, a second block occasionally just if the maths lined up, you know, where it was like you got one block at the same time as another one and then one had a second one mined like, you know, pretty quickly. But the design of the system is such that everything reconciles on average pretty fast because... They're very fast. If you think about it, what there's like how many... How many um blocks are there in a week like say, say it's a thousand yeah it's like 144 a day so yeah it's about about a thousand a week yeah so let's just use round numbers and say every thousand say once in every thousand um there was one of these awesome blocks 
For another one to happen, the probability of that is one in every million. Yeah. So that's in every thousand weeks. So that's every 20 years. Yeah. So you're starting like vanishingly low and for it to happen three times then would be one in 20,000 years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like, again, yeah, that's just some like rough numbers. I really don't want to, you know, say I that that's the, yeah, yeah, that's where or anything I'm yeah just so the the point is that the uh, because Frozen. yeah for all of the miners the worst thing in the world is for them to be uh fighting over which you know which blocks it was right if they get any sense oh, so that they are on the minority side they want to switch as quickly as possible because anytime they're mining on the block that is the wrong oh. one they're just wasting their own money. money exactly yeah. exactly so uh, historically you know the model has sort of proven itself that people have been able to reconcile back onto the same chain very, uh, very, very fast. And this is where some of the problems, you know, I mean, it just depends how, how deep into all this we go, but this is the topic of this episode uh, in like proof of stake is that that is sort of less proven. It might work, but it's less proven because in proof of work, you can only mine on one side of the fork. If there's a split like that, you have to choose. You can't mine both with the same electricity. But with proof of stake, if I have a thousand coins, I can proof of stake on both chains and I'm not forced to make a decision. And therefore, the game theory incentives are completely different because there's not a strong, you know, snowball incentive for everybody to realign back onto the same one because the losing ones are, you know, are wasting their electricity. That's not the same on uh, proof of stake, which is one of the reasons I'm more skeptical of the model. Can I jump back to something we were talking about before? When you were saying um, you, you're looking at the white paper and you're talking about nodes, um, in the white paper, they were, you know, as you've sort of mentioned in a couple of the episodes, the white paper refers to both nodes and um, mining nodes, like non-mining nodes and mining nodes as nodes, right? Because Satoshi, in that paper, at least it seems like he would think that all nodes would be mining. But now, of course, there's non-mining nodes. So when we were talking about the scaling issues, it's true that it would become more expensive for the non-mining nodes, right? But... If you think about it, from mining node, it becomes no more expensive. Well, it does become more expensive uh, for a mining node, but again, the it's sort of a question of how you imagine it, right? Like if if you have spent a hundred, you know, thousand dollars, let's say, which is probably even a conservative estimate, on getting your mining set up, where you've got all your machines, you've got your employees to yeah. run it, you've got your cooling, you've got your rent, you know, you've got <laughs> your payoffs to the government, yeah, yeah. whatever you've got, you've got all these costs, ah. right? And then somebody's like, listen, we're gonna need another five gigabytes of storage space. You're not gonna be like, shit, that's $20 for a hard drive, like shut it down, it's over. <laughs> like, you're just, you're not gonna do that. No, but actually it doesn't even, it because it actually means that the proof of work, the difficulty problem just becomes slightly, doesn't grow slightly as quickly as it would otherwise. Like the free market, the, the market, the, the system that's built in actually cancels out, I believe. Yeah, well, so the, yeah, obviously, yeah, then that, that's... A little bit more money in the other parts, then, then you end up spending a little bit less on the proof of work and it actually cancels out to yeah, zero. Yeah, exactly. As if... if... Yeah, because mining the difficulty, yeah, balances to whatever is the very slimmest margin of, of return for the mining operations. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. That's right. And so when you have the, so the argument about uh, not, you know, scaling the block size is to have these kind of, uh, you know, the cost for non-mining nodes, but non-mining nodes, while good, are not the key element to the system because a non-mining node 
it's nice. It's nice to have, okay, I can verify all my transactions and all, you know, whatever, but it's not what the majority of Bitcoin users are going to use. They're going to use, um, you know, SPV wallets, like mobile wallets and stuff like that. And if the cost of that is that instead of being able to have the entire planet using crypto or Bitcoin cash, instead, you can only have, you know, a few banks and a few big hedge funds and a couple of world governments who treat it like digital gold and barely even trade it, then what, what's the point, right? It's self to, self-defeating, essentially. Right, right. Cool. So... Uh, interestingly, yeah, we had this week, um, this report, which came out, which I was, uh, I was amazed by where Skrill, who is a huge, uh, payments, uh, company. Um, I've talked to a few people about this study and it seems like depending on where you are in the world, some people have heard of Skrill and some people haven't, but they are, you know, they're not uh, PayPal level big or Stripe level big, but they are kind of up there, uh, at least in some parts of the world. They surveyed 8,000 people, so this is not a small endeavor, in the US, the UK, Canada, Germany, Austria, Bulgaria, and Italy, so pretty decent spread of uh, countries in sort of uh, North America and Europe, in March and April of this year, and they found that in their survey, 84% of people recognize crypto. To me, that's maybe a little bit low. I would have thought it would have been at least you know 95, maybe even 100% uh, by now. But more surprisingly, they found 38% of those people own own cryptocurrency already. You know, 4 in 10 people, that's insane. 66% recognized uh, Bitcoin by name. They knew, okay, Bitcoin, you know, that's the biggest crypto. They could sort of describe that and everything. And then this is for me, obviously, being the Bitcoin Cash uh, fan was uh, a bit of a blockbuster one where Bitcoin Cash is the second most recognized. So Bitcoin is number one at 66%. Bitcoin Cash, 31%, and Ethereum, which is the number two by market cap uh, and on a lot of other metrics, was only recognized by 22% of people. And then Bitcoin Cash was owned by 9% of those people and Ethereum only by 8%. So Bitcoin Cash really putting up uh, good numbers relative to its sort of prominence on those uh, frequently referenced uh, coin, coin market cap uh, rankings. And then they had 97% of the people who, who were, you know, involved in the cryptocurrency aspects got involved in the last year. So it really seems like on that exponential of people getting involved that, in, you know, in the last year, it's really started kicking off. And in the, you know, the next year or two, it'll pretty quickly be snowballing to nearly everyone, right, will be involved in this you know, to some extent, right? If 40% of, well, 38% of people own crypto, that means there's probably basically nobody who doesn't know someone who owns crypto, right? That's like, it's going right. to be... Right, and there's going to be some people who won't, won't own crypto until until it's like directly useful for them. Yeah. So, right. so percent of people who have, have their mind open enough that they want to try crypto, like that would be much higher than 38%. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, people, uh, yeah, I was mind blown, like 38% of people. That's so, that's so many. And that's obviously a variety of situations, right? For some people, that means they've got their own wallets and they're all set up and they know all about it. And for some people, it's, they bought a little bit on uh, Coinbase or, you know, whatever they did, right? Or maybe their friend sent them five bucks and then they forgot about it. Or like, you know, there's all sorts of different uh, scenarios that 38% of people does not mean 
38% of people are out there at the Bitcoin 2021 conference, you know, this is the future and it's all over. But it, even just having that many people, I was, I was blown away. But it did make sense to me because uh, at my recent uh, experience going to the London meetups, the, the crowd there, a, a vast majority of them uh, have, have just got involved in the last year, right? So it sort of made sense, it sort of lined up for me with these statistics. Um, yeah, and what's kind of interesting here is that, you know, Bitcoin Cash is number two. Um, Bitcoin itself is already, you know, going to have some teething problems about scaling. And I was thinking, like, what's the biggest difference between these two? Is it just like some of these technicalities that, you know, this is a slightly bigger block size? And I'm thinking the biggest difference is going to be the community. Because the guys who stayed with, that, with the previous one and didn't want any change... Um, they're going to be even more conservative. Can you imagine trying to pull them on to increase the block size? But the Bitcoin Cash guys, they're already used to being like, okay, let's let's move, let's improve. Um, we want to make this more scalable. We want to include transactions. We want it to be electronic cash. And so they're going to keep increasing the block size and keep making it more and more usable. Whereas blockchain, uh, sorry, excuse me, whereas Bitcoin, they're going to be like, no, we're on digital gold. We don't want to change. So it could be quite interesting that, like, you know, logically, like, they, they're the market winner and they could sort of innovate, but they're not going to. Does that sound like a persuasive argument? Well, yeah, that's definitely how I think of it, you know. And there's, there's a balance that you want to have, right? So, uh, for instance, it's not beneficial, and I talked about this, I think, in the episode I did with uh, Cameron, where I talked about cryptocurrency communities, uh, where... You, you do want to strike a balance. You don't want to have the world's most innovative cryptocurrency because if you're always changing something, then it's, you know, your risk, the risks are higher, right? If you're always tweaking and twiddling this and that, then, you you know, move fast and break things, you're going to break things, right? And so that's yeah. that's essentially what it comes down to. And especially when it comes to something like money, you, you want to have a high degree of confidence, you know, uh, stability, not necessarily in terms of the price, although also in terms of the price, but in terms of the the fundamentals of the network, the reliability, all, all those kind of aspects, right? Investors are going to be looking for that. If you're changing things up every week, people are not going to think, look, let me put a like a life-changing amount of money in this if they can't know that next week the devs are going to, you know, add some new thing that's going to screw everything up. So in that sense, you don't want to be innovating too fast. But at the same time, you also don't want to be innovating too slow. And the BTC crowd, they they basically have gone to the other extreme where they've decided, okay, let's pretty much try and just ossify our protocol and really not tweak or upgrade it too much. And then being the biggest crypto, it makes sense that they have the most to gain from being reliable. But given that they're not at a current point where they could get to a world scale and everyone could be using it, in that sense, they're trading off massively in the network effect of people being able to use it among themselves and build that sort of, yeah, momentum and, and hype. So it's a big uh, topic and we're gonna to touch on this a little bit later as well in the Bitcoin Cash community is Bitcoin Cash is one of the more conservative coins, I would say, in terms of how they uh, approach, uh, you know, adding new features and tweaking and changing everything because the sort of the, in general, the mission is simple, which is peer-to-peer -peer cash. So for that, you want to have a fixed limit of 21 million coins and you want the payments to be scaled to global size and be reliable and cheap. 
So those are the top priorities and everything is kind of uh, in service of that. But they do also, they are still proactive about this. Like for instance, recently, one of the things that has been going in has been double spend proofs, which is uh, a method where, like we were talking about before, where if you wanna send small payments and not wait for a block, they've put in a technology so you can, I can make, I can send something around to everyone and then if somebody tries to double spend me, then somebody will obviously receive the two conflicting payments and they publish a proof out onto the network, like a, an alert saying, warning, here's a double spend. But because like we talked about, if it only takes one to two seconds for everything to propagate around, if you've waited, let's say two seconds, one second for the transaction to bounce around and then one second to see that nobody broadcast an alert, well, then you have even more confidence that your transaction is, is going to be valid and nobody's trying to kind of scam you. So those kind of features, that's killer. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, but but those, those only add value. Like they can't, that can't make the whole thing less reliable. That's just something on top. So that's hardly radical. And the other thing that Bitcoin Cash has done, which has increased the block size, it's definitely not a radical move, right? Well, it, uh, it depends who you ask, right? According to me, no, it's not radical at all. And when there was the uh, community was debating all of this in 2016, 2017, uh, you know, originally it was like well over 90%, probably more than 95% of people who were debating it at that time just said, look, let's just raise the block size limit. Like e even at the time, it was as simple as saying, look, it's one megabyte now. And people, sort of, some people would sort of say, oh, well, it's risky. You just say, well, how about we just put it up to two? And look, is that going to melt down the entire world? No, right? Even at that point, it was pretty clear that two megabytes could be handled. And then we could see, oh, look, it worked and it was fine. But instead, due to all the, everything that happened with the forums starting to censor and ban people and certain people who were, you know, influential or who were close to the, the code repositories, kind of getting their fingers into it and, and stuff like that, they just sort of split the narrative so effectively. It was brilliantly done in hindsight um, by those by those people, but it did sort of, yeah, just take a lot of uh, manipulation essentially to convince a huge percentage of people, mostly people who came after the split had already been established, that there was going to be some grand issue with with having larger blocks, which as we've seen now, Bitcoin Cash has had those bigger blocks and it's been perfectly fine and the fees are low and it's still reliable. Uh, but by now the narratives have already diverged too much. So, so what do you think of the narrative that, um, uh, that the, somehow in the mind, now it's, it's not exactly clear in my head how this narrative works, but something like it's in the miners' interests because high transaction fees and and forcing people to hold, yeah, I guess high, high transaction fees and sort of putting a, a limit on ability, people's ability to cash in and cash out therefore pushes the price up and that's what miners want and, and they're the ones who are really pushing this split. Well, yeah, you do, you do want to have uh, ultimately, so let's say right now the network security, the amount of mining infrastructure you can support is based on the coin rewards for each block plus the transaction fees, right? And it, Bitcoin was d designed rather ingeniously by Satoshi to front load the issuance so that in the early days, there was a lot of new coins coming out and therefore you didn't need many transaction fees, right? Because the coins themselves were already the reward. But then the coins drop off as time go on 
uh, goes on in terms of being distributed to the uh, to the miners. But the idea is that as time goes on, you would sort of have a proportional system where as the as the block rewards dropped off, the transactions would be growing to compensate, right? So that at the end, you would end up with a system where the only thing was the network fees, but by then you would have a massive pool of people all transacting. So those 0.1 cent fees all add up to cover, you know, the 50 Bitcoins, let's say that it was in the original days where it was 50 Bitcoins every every block, right? So that's kind of the, that, that was sort of the original plan. And that's still, I think, a good plan. It's premised on going big. It's not going to work if it only gets a little bit of the way and then sort of meanders along. But, you know, that that's kind of what we're talking, that's why I'm talking about the global reserve currency, right? That everybody can use every day for all their finances. The opposite side of the coin where you say, okay, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to have a uh, small block so that we have high fees and therefore, uh, you know, retain that same amount of payments to the miners. Well, it's pretty simple to understand. If you have two payment, let's say I'm making you Visa and MasterCard and Visa is going to cost, you know, $10 a transaction and only allow 1,000 people to transact and MasterCard is going to cost one cent and allow, you know, 10 million people to transact, which one of those payment systems is going to win out? Right, but you can see that, okay, I think the, I, I think the case might be American Express does charge more, right? And merchants, therefore, don't really like to accept American Express. They do sometimes, but, you know, much more much more take Visa and MasterCard. But what's kind of interesting there is, um, yeah, like the merchants decide that. Um, but it is in it is in American Express's interest to to keep up the you know with the high fee model. Um, so in this case, maybe it's the same thing that like the miners are the ones who you know it's in their economic interest to um, say keep using um, Bitcoin. But as as well, first of all, as, as um, transactions rates go up and so transaction prices go up on the Bitcoin network, and then as more users are using it to, to do daily transactions. Um, there will be more and more pressure for people to move over to Bitcoin Cash. Does that sound plausible? Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's kind of the idea, right? Is that uh, right now, because the hash rate uh, follows the price, because the price of BDC has been so much higher, therefore the, the transaction fees, you know, it's sort of still worth it. Like it's a bit of self-perpetuating, if you see what I'm saying. Because Bitcoin is... Forty thousand dollars a coin, therefore, you know, paying ten thousand dollars. I mean, ten dollars per coin to move it around. If it is just people making these big, large trades, can still kind of hold itself together. But it's premised on the price being high because if the price starts to drop off, then those the amount of uh, mining equipment you know that can uh, that can be sustained by that is, is lower. So if the Bitcoin cash to BTC ratio starts to uh, uh, rise or drop. If BCH starts rising against BTC, which is why at the start of every episode, I, I talk about the ratio there. If that starts to rise, then more of the miners will want to mine on Bitcoin cash. And then that as that price rises and as the miners move over, it gives the network more security and more confidence and so then more people will start using it for transactions which will then increase the amount of fees available and so you can sort of see this loop happening where slowly the miners you know start to shift one way or the other 
And the miners are not the ones setting the rates, they're just responding to the market forces. So really it's the price that needs to change for the miners to switch. The miners don't switch and then, you know, the, the market picks, right? People buy and sell on the, all the exchanges and that sort of sets the price. So to date, BTC has been able to hold its lead fairly comfortably. But in the last six months since January and with the latest episode of the fees being really high on BTC, we've seen, you know, uh, BCH reverse its trend and go from 118 to 1 at the bottom to now 55 to 1 and it's been as high as 35 to 1. And if it keeps spreading that adoption and more and more people using it like the USD cent graph that we were looking at, even though it's 55 to 1 in terms of the price, the actual trade every day is like 1.5 to 1 or 2 to 1, right? And if it gets to a point where it's, you know, 1 to 1 and then BCH is doing more trade, sooner or later the world's going to really clue in that Bitcoin only has the brand name. It's actually just less useful. Right, right. And also like, um, so like the, the amount of money that you spend on, on mining is not really a very interesting metric at all. That's sort of measuring measuring, you know, like American Express and MasterCard on, on how much money each of them wastes. You know, you're going to say the, the, the least efficient network is the one that's somehow worth more. Well, yeah, to me that's the, the mining hash rate on being on BDC is significant uh, in the sense that it gives it more security. But on the other hand, yeah, like you're saying, ultimately you want, well, firstly, we sort of touched on the environmental angle, right? the environmental yeah. capacity for BTC is quite limited because the, uh, the if you have the same amount of electricity, if you're processing more transactions, it's obviously more efficient per transaction, right? So Bitcoin Cash will become more environmental as it gets uh, bigger and bigger, which was the whole idea. So at a small scale, it's horribly inefficient, but at massive scale, it's massively efficient compared to you know the banking sector, which needs to have bank branches and offices and you know, cars and security guards and all this kind of, you know, crap data centers, whatever they've got, right? Bitcoin Cash literally just has the nodes and the miners. Uh, and the, when the coin issuance is gone, the transaction fees set the reward and that sets the difficulty, which sets the amount of mining power you put into it. So it will literally come out to a perfectly efficient system like we were talking about with the, the miners adjusting to the you know, marginal rate of return. I forget the exact word, but you know what I'm talking about. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it's also just like, do you really like how high do you need that? The you know the proof of work to be for it to be secure. Like, I'm not sure above a certain point. Above a certain point, you're just burning electricity. I'm not sure you're making it that much more secure. Like in theory, yes, but like in practice. You know, you'd still have to mount such a big attack. That's right, exactly. And so, like, be you know, BDC is in the position where if a government wanted to build enough miners to take over the network, it's basically impossible, right? Because by the time they started like buying up, you know, more and more miners, the rest of the network would have already expanded ahead of them. And probably if they started doing that, the whole world would be looking at this and other countries would start buying, you know, to fight them off or like, you know, what the whole network already just has so much gear and so much stuff going on. And so with BCH, you know, the only people who are threatening to BCH, even though they have, uh, you know, 2% of the hash rate, let's say right now, well, that's already way bigger than every government or, you know, companies, whatever, they don't have any miners, right? So exactly. it's already more than enough. And even if they, even if, so they're only ones who can attack them, 
are the BTC miners. But the BTC miners don't do that and we haven't really seen them doing that. And why? Because the BTC miners are the BCH miners. They can mine both. I know. They're the same people who are just switching over to which have um, just changing their uh, like um, proportion of compute power from one network to the other. Exactly. And secondly, like they, they've got enough economic incentive to mine, even if it's on the other network. You know, you, you don't attack the, the um, Bitcoin Cash network because you're busy on the Bitcoin network until, as you say, people will all switch over to Bitcoin Cash, in which case they'll move to Bitcoin Cash too. They're not in the it's, it's they're not in the business of, of trying to attack a network. And and the one thing I thought about that the whole thing is like if someone managed to do like you know once in a um, you know a massive attack and was able to swindle, then the entire currency would become worthless the next day. And what they stole them would be worthless. And so, like, it sort of defeats the entire purpose of doing a double spend attack. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we haven't seen uh, a lot of really large scale uh, double spend attacks, but you're exactly right. The incentives don't, the whole, that's the whole premise of, of cryptocurrency, <laughs> of, of Bitcoin, especially, is that the miners, they need the Bitcoins to be valuable because that's what they're getting rewarded with. So, why would they shoot themselves in the foot? They've already spent the money on their gear. They can't get that back. Same with their electricity. So the last thing they want to do is, is tank their own investment. What we've got uh, here, this story in the Bitcoin uh, cash community this week, which just came up in the last uh, couple of days, was this new site that came out called Satoshi Pyramid. I think it's been live for about a week, maybe like eight or, or nine days, but it sort of kicked off on Reddit, uh, a couple of days ago and the idea is that it is literally a blatantly advertised pyramid scheme so the site has a bitcoin cash address uh and anybody can send in any amount of bitcoin cash they want and there is a a, a pyramid structure so that uh you know there's an increasing amount of coins required at each level of the pyramid and if you get in at one level of the pyramid and it gets through to the next level of the pyramid, then you get paid back double your money from the people on the next level, right? And that, that's how a pyramid scheme, that's how a Ponzi scheme works, right? But the, this is, this is, it's not as like, it is a scam in the sense of all the scams, you know, in the world that work like this, but it's, it's blatantly advertised as such. So it's like a game where everybody is aware. It's literally called Satoshi Pyramid. So everybody knows that this is what they're, they're playing, right? And before we say any more about this, full disclosure, I played this a little bit because I thought this was funny as hell, right? So if you're getting involved in this, for all the listeners, not financial advice, just, just if you want to have fun with this, do it. But, you know, be aware, it's literally a pyramid scheme <laughs> game. And uh, there's a clock which counts down, which starts at 60 days, so about two months. And if... Uh, the clock hits zero, uh, then all of the people who haven't got paid out yet, well, they lose all their money, right? So, uh, so if you're in and enough other people buy in after you, you've doubled your money. And if you're in the last wave of people, then then you just shit out of luck, right? And <laughs> and this 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 is just uh, really. You know, and there's a okay. There's a couple more little things to say about this. So the first part is that there's no, there's nothing to stop the guy running the site from just taking all the money and running. But 
because it's on a blockchain, he's been able to demonstrate that he's not doing that, that he is sending out the payments to people because everybody sending in the payments could be seen on the blockchain and so can the payments going out. So in this way, uh, obviously he could still just shut it down and just at any time grab the money and go. But the idea is um, that he would earn more from continuing to run the game than just stealing everybody's money because he can keep you know running a second game and a third game and a fourth game. Uh, and the guy who set this up is quite known in the Bitcoin Cash community. So there was at least a seed of kind of trust that he was not you know just some random person who'd, who'd set this up. But he was you know sort of banking on his reputation to at least run the site a little bit. So this. What was the first level? So the first level was I think it was two satoshis. So because it's a pyramid scheme, it goes up exponentially. So it started at two Satoshi. So like a, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a cent, right? And it quickly got up to, we can see here. So level 21 was 0.01 Bitcoin. So what's that right now? That's about $70, right? 770. No, that's about $7, right? And then, uh, you know, so it's quickly scaled up. Uh, doing about one one day to go through each level, doubling every time. Yep, du doubling every time. So it's got up to here. So level thirty was five uh, Bitcoin Cash. Level thirty one was ten point seven. Level thirty two was twenty one point four, and it's gone up and up and up. And I haven't checked the latest, but it was up to level thirty nine, which was two thousand seven hundred uh, Bitcoin Cash. And at that uh, at this point that it was at this. Uh, took this screenshot i think last night or whatever but this morning it was it had paid out more than like one point nearly 1.2 million dollars <laughs> right so uh it it has been you know it, it's a pyramid scheme people are getting uh paid out of it right and there's this other little sort of wrinkle to it which is that the guy who's running the site he has said look there's a, you know, there's a 10% fee that he is taking for all of this, but his plan, because he owns Bitcoin Cash, he wants to spread Bitcoin Cash. So he set up this uh, site in order to uh, spread Bitcoin Cash adoption, because what he looked at uh, the crypto scene and he thought every other coin is basically premised on gambling and speculation and financial hype, right? So like Dogecoin is the classic, right? Everybody understands that's mostly just hype. They're not changing the world so much as they're just hyping each other up to buy. And the same with... Who did, who did Dogecoin copy? Like they're the exact same technology as another coin. Right? Well, they just split off from um, Litecoin. It was basically just oh. a... Let me think. Uh, no, it might have even been Bitcoin. I think, yeah, it's literally just a... No, it's, it must be Litecoin because it was uh, script mine. So I think they split off from Litecoin, which itself just split off from Bitcoin without really that much innovation, right? So it's still fairly compatible. And Dogecoin actually have recently been in the position of trying to figure out whether they keep copying Bitcoin or whether they start copying Bitcoin Cash because they're getting their fees are going up because too many people are trading it. Uh, so they sort of, you know, they're going to have it because there's not really that many developers on Dogecoin, right? Because no developers are like, great, let me spend my whole life doing Dogecoin. They don't give a shit. So... Uh, so they're struggling. So, but anyway, they so somebody looked at all these coins and they thought, okay, Dogecoin is obviously just hype. Like tons of other coins, 
they, they literally just hype. You can look at coinmarketcap.com. So many of them are just hype. You know, maybe Bitcoin has some legitimate development. Ethereum, even Ethereum uh, now has a lot of projects and so on. But it started out being about crypto kitties and NFTs, right? Has recently been this huge bubble. And so they just said, look, every single coin has people just gambling and speculating away. We need to have some of that in Bitcoin Cash. So they invented this Satoshi Pyramid pyramid scheme where the fees from it are going to go back into the ecosystem to fund, you know, real projects, but kind of harnessing the speculative urge of people to buy, you know, to gamble and, and trade away. And this is not, this is pretty true to crypto because one of the earliest apps, probably the earliest app that was big, that was known in Bitcoin in 2011 was called uh, Satoshi Dice, right? And you can still play it today, but you can only play it on Bitcoin Cash. You can't play it on Bitcoin anymore because the fees are too high. But it's a site where you can send in uh, any amount of, well, there's a, there's a maximum, but you, up to a limit, you can send in any amount of cryptocurrency and it generates a random number. And then if you win, it, it pays you back out some, you know, so it's kind of like a, uh, sort of like a roulette uh, type of thing, basically. Uh, and you can pick, you can set your odds. Do you want to have your odds to be 10 to 1 or 5 to 1 or 3 to 1? And obviously your payout varies based on your odds. And you just send it in. And because it's on the blockchain, they can prove that they're not scamming because they can publish, look, these are the transactions. This is how we generated the random numbers. They reveal that at the end of each day. So you can see that it all lines well, up. And yeah. And you, you can see that on average they pay out, you know, you do whatever it is minus their fees right that that's all, all transparent that's right exactly so people can have some confidence that uh you know they can offer a house edge of only 0. you know one percent or whatever it is that they have which no other gambling website or casino or anything can afford they try down the crown and, and asking for yeah, that it's, it's just not going to happen so financial speculation especially in this sort of pseudonymous unregulated way has always been a classic of, of cryptocurrencies. And I, I just thought this was the funniest, most actually quite brilliant uh, idea to do because in Bitcoin Cash, this sort of pyramid type game, the idea is that people who have bought in, just like any obvious pyramid scheme, are incentivized to go out and <laughs> spread the message around to people, right? So it's a bit self-sustaining in that way. And obviously people are going to lose money and uh, get hurt. But, and here's the very key point that, uh, you know, people were sort of commenting on this and some people sort of said, okay, this is terrible because it's going to associate cryptocurrency with scams. And I kind of thought, well, look, what world are you living in? Cryptocurrency is already associated with scams and hype and gambling. Anyway, that's not... <laughs> that's that's definitely not new. At least this one's honest yeah. about it, right? So... Because you know what you're getting into. I don't think people who lose out are going to be that salty because it's not people who just have no idea what's going on. To actually play this game, you can't even send from an exchange because you won't be able to get the money back to your address. To play this game, you have to read the website, you have to install a Bitcoin Cash wallet, you have to get some coins, you have to understand how cryptocurrency works, send in your coins, and then see how it goes, right? So you can't just sort of accidentally, whoops, I put my entire retirement savings into this. The only way to be involved is if you understand crypto at least enough to know how private keys work and sending around your money and being involved. So in that way, I don't think the people who 
lose out are going to be that salty because they knew what they were getting themselves uh, into. But it, it is this very clever sort of system of in, incentives. And like I said, I was <laughs> I sent in <laughs> a little bit of money, not very much. I sent in a bit and I got paid out and I was like, <laughs> this is great. <laughs> so, uh, you know, viewers, uh, listeners, beware, right? If I, you know, I, I do not recommend <laughs> this to you. It is literally a pyramid scheme. But on the other hand, it is pretty fun. So uh, if you, <laughs> if you, you know, I'll, I'll leave it at that, right? Everybody can uh, make their own uh, decisions. But. Well, it begs the question, will, will the casino industry be the first industry that would move online on onto, onto crypto, you know? Yeah. Because it is in many parts of the world, but you can't stop it on on Bitcoin. That's right, exactly. And that's been long sort of speculated. And I think we're, we're going to see more and more of that. You could do, you know, Satoshi dice or Satoshi pyramid on, on Bitcoin Cash. Maybe other coins have their own, you know, variations of this same kind of theme. But a blockchain can, A, can provably verify their payouts and B, offer, you know, a house edge that no other physical casino or even gambling company can afford to match because the the setup fees are so low, the infrastructure costs are near nothing. So uh, financial speculation in the broad sense, like we talked about right at the start, yeah, with the casino, the whole of crypto being this this huge casino, it's bootstrapping an entire industry because not everything is financial speculation, but there's enough financial speculation to drag in some money. And then that's like the seed funding you know, Bitcoin is not a company, so it doesn't have it doesn't have VC investors, but the users are the VC investors because they put their money in. And so if a lot of them come to speculate, it blows up the market cap, it creates an economy that then people can use it to trade for other things, right? And that's how cryptocurrency has expanded from being worth nothing to being worth, you know, a trillion dollars uh, or more, you know, at points this year. And so this kind of, using these kind of gimmicks and games to really get people involved in in cryptocurrency and to even just try it out with a small amount and get excited and everything like that, I think it's uh, I think it's you know pretty I think it's pretty smart. And I mean, even if people said okay, it could be you know associating us with a scam. Well, cryptocurrency has already got a terrible reputation, but the fact is it's got past that. Like, yeah, it's used to buy drugs or it's used by criminals or whatever. But that is now a very small percentage of the transactions. But even when it had it in the early days, I mean, criminals and scammers, they use technology just like everyone else. You know, they use mobile phones. It's, if it's useful to people, it's useful to scammers, basically. And that, you know, everybody's starting to understand that about cryptocurrency. So I'm not particularly worried about it being, well, Bitcoin Cash, it just has Satoshi Pyramid and it's all a scam. Well, some people will think that. But some people will try it out and see, wait a second, so this is one application, what about the other applications? And, you know, then that uh, legitimate adoption can come about as a, as a side effect, which is really right. important. That, that's kind of like going down to the casino and going all, all money. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to US dollars. Yeah, exactly. And I think everybody's sort of starting to, starting to understand that about uh, cryptos. So... Anyway, that's a very a very interesting uh, story just cropping up there with that. All right, so we've got a slide here about um, Bitcoin and mining incentives. So, I mean, we've kind of already been over this, right? We already talked about uh, the white paper, how much do nodes matter, 
the proof of work, everything like that. Is there, is there any other sort of, yeah, questions or, or whatever you had that you wanted to ask? This is a, a kind of a good time for it. Uh, I think this is awesome that, yeah, that you're just covering this. Um, yeah, I've, I've read a lot of like things in, in ordinary media, like mainstream media that just says things like, um, you know, there's this complicated, like, to support this system, it has to do all this mathematics or something. It's like, that's not really what proof of work is. Yeah. Um, and the journalists, okay, so the journalists didn't really fully understand it. That's okay. But uh, but it is, it's, it's definitely within, most people listening to this podcast, it's within their ability to understand it quite easily. Yeah. It's not that complicated. Yeah, so... So the proof of work uh, type of stuff. I, I will do a separate episode. I really want to do one where I get somebody on who is a minor and we, you know, walk through and explain it all. But for, you know, people who've never really looked into it, essentially the mining, it's often described as this huge complicated problem, but it's not really like complicated in the sense of like genius level IQ or something, you know, in terms of the computers mining it. It's really just random. And because they're doing this random property, like trying to pick lottery tickets out of a hat, and if you had to try and pick lottery tickets out of a hat, but only obviously one lottery ticket wins, you would have to do a lot of that before you hit a winner. And then once you found a winner, nobody could say you'd faked it because there's no way you could have known which one was the winner until you'd picked it out and read it and seen this is the winning ticket. And so most of the... So that's... What What do you think about... um? changing the proof of work problem to be something that's genuinely useful yeah i don't i don't like that you know i mean i think people have sort of suggested that like for instance folding at home or there are other you know types of schemes and there are other coins that do have that right you can uh i don't know what they all are but if you're interested in that you can look into that but the reason those coins generally haven't been successful is that the point of the doing the proof of work and burning the electricity is to be an incentive, an economic incentive in the system, not to cheat and all those things we were discussing before. So if you add something else into the mix, that just upsets the balance. It, it's not like really adding something, actually it's taking away from it. Instead of the system being a sort of pure economic model where the only point of this is to, uh, ver- you know, is to back up the veracity of the transactions and keep people invested in the system. If you sort of have some other, you know, like, cancer curing research or something else going on well then suddenly now you've got you're trying to run a cryptocurrency which is already hard and complicated and has a lot going on and suddenly you're mixing in these other elements it just upsets the balance and kind of you know it doesn't really add anything what, what do you get out of that if you see what i'm saying well you what you get out of it is like you're able to do two things at once you're able to do the proof of work as a, a proof your system but also like have that your extra uh, compute power be used for something rather than just wasted on work. Yeah. I mean, it's... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, like, theoretically, you know, we might see a coin like that. I think if, if there is a good combo of those things, I expect somebody will try it and make it work and show that it's a viable model. But to date, we haven't really seen, you know, none of the top 10 coins are folding at home coin or anything like that because, yeah, it's just... You need to spend the the economic incentives that keep a cryptocurrency running are very finely balanced. And if you put in these other algorithms or different things that the miners have to worry about besides just their strict profit, then uh, then things kind of fall out of balance. 
Right. Um, do you know there is one thing that Bitcoin, one one utility that all the proof of work does prove to like the universe or to, to mankind at least. Yeah. It proves that is it is it SHA two fifty six? Yeah, right. That's the mining algorithm. Yeah. It, it proves that that algorithm can't be reversed because yeah. if it could, if anyone on this planet knew that it could be reversed, they would start like they would start their own mining rig and start making money off it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And later, someone else would figure out what's, what what their game is, and they would figure it out. And then, before you know it, like very obvious, like that, that someone had broken um, the 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 hash function. And so, you can be very, very certain that no one else has figured it out yet. Yeah, and that kind of goes to this point that sometimes people ask me, "Oh, well, aren't you worried about somebody being able to?" steal uh your bitcoin like because it's open source software and everything is just available to the whole world uh you know isn't that a problem right because people are used to thinking of security by obscurity right they're used to thinking of a bank where you have a building and so to keep it secure you put guards outside it you put guns you have fences and you put all the gold in the middle and by armoring it up on every side you make it secure right the key thing is you don't tell everyone what's how you're how you're securing it. You don't tell them what the security systems are. You don't tell them what like what databases you're using and and what you know. You hope that that would help or that secrecy will help help it. But but well, the but the but is then with crypto uh, is that it's kind of like if you it's the opposite of that where if instead of putting my gold in a secret underground vault. What about if I put it in a transparent glass cube and I put it in the middle of Times Square in New York and I said, anybody can do anything they want to try and get my gold, which I have, and everybody can see that it's sitting in the, in the, in the box, right? And people are going to come with their flamethrowers and their ice picks and their, you know, I don't know, whatever. I published all the schematics for my cube everything, all the information you need about it. And I put it there and I put the gold inside it. So there was a reward to get at it and people put drop bombs on it and shot guns at it and did everything they could. Well, the longer the gold is still in that uh, box with the whole world, you know, watching this live stream of everybody trying to get the gold in the box and failing, you can be very, very confident that nobody knows how to, because if they would have, if they knew how to, well, they would have already done it and got the gold out. And so that's the principle of uh, cryptocurrencies is the security is security by transparency rather than by obscurity. And even though it's counterintuitive for people initially, it's actually more secure. It's much easier to be confident in that. Uh, so the one thing I think that maybe could be uh, changed or we might see in terms of the proof of work is potentially it might need a, a change once quantum computing really arrives. That is, that is the one area where, well, we might need to tweak um, the algorithms because some algorithms are better suited, uh, you know, to protect against quantum computing attacks. So that is a case where we could see potentially a change in the algorithm. But other than that, I, I don't really see it happening because how it is it works now, it's funded all this mining infrastructure and it's very secure. All right, so uh, as we kind of uh, come into the last last few little uh, segments of the show, I've got community comment of the week, which I do on uh, most of the shows. 
This one comes from Imaginary Username, who is one of the Bitcoin Cash developers. And recently there's sort of been this uh, debate um, going on among some of the devs where some of them wanted to uh, create a sort of a test coin, like a spin-off of Bitcoin Cash, where they could test out new features because they were frustrated, like we were saying before, that Bitcoin Cash is on the more conservative side. And while some features do get in because everybody agrees they're a good idea, it does take time and they, you know, some people wanted to be doing new features and trying this and that. So they were trying to, they were sort of making an argument for that. An imaginary username, his response was, the number one most important feature of a cryptocurrency is network effect with number two being confidence. Both have themselves and time as their own biggest facilitators. Things that have large networks for a while begets wider networks, ditto confidence. It is therefore puzzling how many are still willing to put other much lesser features, in quotation marks, above these two. No, your favorite feature is not worth resetting BCH back into the land of doubt and chaos. It doesn't matter if it's the most brilliant thing in the world. And I sort of really, really strongly agree with that because as we've seen in the last couple of years, the reason that Bitcoin Cash has not been able to just you know, accelerate ahead and crush ahead of BTC has been there's been too much infighting. First, there was Bitcoin SV and all the drama with that, and then they split off. And then there was BCHA recently, and then they split off. And now people are talking about some other new coin. The inability for the network to just stop trying to change everything or come up with newer and better things all the time, and instead to just focus on, look, if we're just a little bit conservative, but making things that help with the electronic cash case and which are not controversial and then just give the network time to breathe and time for new businesses and projects to emerge and and all of that then if the community is all being productive instead of infighting amongst each other uh, it will actually be be a lot better off and so i said yeah spot on third most important is economic efficiency low fees and fourth most important is decentralization uh, resistance to partisan capture at any layer of the ecosystem so in a coin you want to have a big network effect and consumer confidence that come by not rocking the boat too much. And once you have those, you want it to be cheap and uh, distributed so that it's not, it's not controllable. And those are the primary things that I feel that the community should be focusing on and encouraging and not getting too wrapped up in trying to do these other, you know, test coins or add other features or make better and better contracts or, any of that kind of stuff. There's already a lot of other coins that are doing that stuff and we've already got our, our niche. So by the way, I, I do have a couple of thought experiments I wanted to run by you before, you know, if we've got time for that in the podcast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's up to you. I don't know how, how long you got. <laughs> I, I, if you're still willing Wait, to keep rolling, I am. I'm, I'm enjoying this, so it won't, time won't be. Okay, all right. Okay, hit me. Let's uh, let's Let's talk about it. So one of them is, what would happen so in the past countries have like given up on their own currency like i think ecuador you know after a couple of failed attempts they just said we're giving up we're adopting us dollar what would what would happen if they if a country a central bank they call you up tomorrow and they're like mate you seem to know what's going on which we we want to just adopt a cryptocurrency as our as our national currency which cryptocurrency would you advise them to do and then what do you think would be like the long-term consequences? Or what do you think the consequences would be? Yeah, so, I mean, my answer I think is going to be obvious, which is that I would, I would advise them Bitcoin Cash, right? But let's, 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 let, me, let me take a bit of another 
you know, a bit of a broader angle to them and say, okay, they can, they can pick any, uh, well, obviously I think it, Bitcoin Cash would be the best because it's the fastest, it's the cheapest, it's designed to be used just as, as regular um, money. But the actually the broader case is, is sort of nothing to do with that, which is in some sense, the entire cryptocurrency uh, marketplace, all the speculation and all that stuff you can see going on, essentially what it is, is a kind of, well, like we've said before, gambling, where the, what people are betting on is which coin will be the coin that becomes the world currency, right? Because if you think about existing fiat currencies, especially by this point, it's very obvious that cryptocurrencies are growing and they're going to keep growing until they just take over, right? There's not really any grand innovation that is coming out of the US dollar that is going to compete with cryptocurrencies, which always have new features, new ideas, more and more people getting familiar with them, more and more trade happening, more and more efficient ways of doing things, smart contracts, new technology. It's just not only is that the US dollar is good because it's already widespread and accepted, but fundamentally it doesn't improve. The US dollar doesn't get cooler and <laughs> slicker and you know get more people interested. It doesn't happen, but cryptocurrencies do. So as that trend accelerates, it's essentially inevitable that one of them takes over or that they take over as an industry. So with that premise in mind, uh, what you need to sort of think about is the network effect. And I talked about this, uh, I'll link to it. It was in episode eight of, um, of the podcast where I talked about the, the path to global adoption and about the different competition among cryptocurrencies, which is once you've accepted that cryptocurrency is gonna take over, then in theory at, at large scale, you should have one coin which sort of rises up ahead of the pack. And originally that coin was BTC because it had 95% of all the activity and energy was there. And all the other coins were just like tiny experiments. And the idea was if any of them has any good features, we'll put them into Bitcoin. But that kind of got derailed, like you were saying, where they stopped innovating or accepting those changes and they started driving away traffic uh, and users by refusing to raise the the block size. But if any other coin can sort of grab a critical mass and get the ball rolling, then it would quickly shoot up to then draw in other people just because it was the most useful and had the most trade going on. So if you were, let's say a medium sized country, you could probably pick just about any coin. I would recommend them to pick Bitcoin Cash, but they could pick just about any one that they felt had you know, the seeds of what they were looking for. And then by adopting that, it would be a self-fulfilling prophecy where then other countries would also want to, they wouldn't want to start a different crypto or pick a different one because they probably trade with your country. So they want to have the same currency so they can trade with you. And then the third country, you know, it's a knock-on effect and it snowballs so, like that. Would that first country thus, by, by setting off that domino effect, become incredibly wealthy? You know, yes. they're lending their own, they're by lending their own authority to the system, but also getting in early. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's where cryptocurrency adoption is essentially inevitable because at every layer of the economic spectrum, the whole world is currently basically in a race to understand that we are going to switch to cryptocurrencies. And therefore, uh, once, if you, once you understand that premise, 
then you think, well, it's better to be early than late, right? And then you switch. And then all that does is it makes it more likely for everyone else to realize this is happening. I need to switch too. And that's what we've seen in the entire history of cryptos has been over time, more and more and more people switching onto cryptos. And as more people were doing it, well, then some companies started to think, wait, I'm, I'm, are we going to miss out on this? And so now they've started to kind of slide into it. And now we've seen the banks having the same thing. And it's inevitable that governments are going to have the same thing where once one breaks away from the herd and sort of makes a play for it, not every other currency, every other country can't afford to be left behind. And so then well, they all have like, to rush in afterwards. So in that way, it's kind of like getting on the internet, right? Like back in 1994, getting on the internet was fun. It was a bit niche, but like it actually wasn't that useful. But by 2000, you know, okay, there's a lot, you know, Nowadays, it's basically impossible to live your life if you're not on the internet. So that network, that's the network effect you're talking about, drawing people in. And if you think that what what when did like Bitcoin got started, what, like approximately 20 years after the internet? Yeah. Probably maybe a similar adoption curve. Yeah. Well, I think probably faster, but similar, but maybe even faster. And the reason is because the internet is the facilitator for for cryptocurrencies, <laughs> right? The internet right. didn't have the internet to bootstrap it, but the, right. but Bitcoin has. And that's why we've seen Bitcoin has been around now for like 12 years. I mean, the internet is older than, uh, you know, 20 years. Like Bitcoin started in um, 2009, right? 2008, 2009. And so the internet is obviously older than 1989. Like there was earlier than that. They were doing, you know, it was like in the 50s and stuff where the military were starting to sort of create these networks uh, so it took actually, you know, the better part of maybe 60 years. But for cryptocurrency, we've taken 12 years. And what are we? We've got 40% of people owning crypto, right? So if you think, you know, it, it's probably in under 20. So probably in the next eight years, we're going to see, you know, huge amounts of people coming on board every, like even just in this year, I've been blown away at how many large companies have announced some kind of crypto integration, right? and how much it's just becoming a believable inevitability in the global mindshare. So once you are thinking in those, in those terms, money is also a lot stickier than, than the internet because the, it has a higher cost in the sense of the internet uh, is, is like there's not much downside, right? Like if you couldn't get the internet before and then suddenly you could read news, well, information is very... Uh, attractive in that way like there's not much I, to lose i can still get my newspaper every day right i can still use my own telephone my, the old ways of doing things whereas you, yeah. i think you pointed out on some of the other podcasts that like a dollar in one system is a dollar less than another so you really got to be in one or the other exactly. so that would be a cascading effect and if people um, stop demanding you know another currency if if like i'm already in the position where i would rather be paid in in cryptocurrency than in you know um fiat currency and i'll have a little bit of fiat currency because everybody else hasn't caught up to that yet but as more and more people get caught up to that i'm have less and less need for fiat currency and eventually some i just won't <laughs> trade i won't you know do any deals with anybody who doesn't accept crypto because i just be like you're living in the past right right um, so i'm kind of curious like does it not make sense then to diversify because if you think about it like if you're right on this um, you would become incredibly, like you would become incredibly wealthy, right? Probably wouldn't need to work. So doesn't it make sense to spread your bets across, across currencies? 
Well, yeah, definitely in some sense. And I don't, you know, I don't have any reasoning against everybody can invest in, uh, you know, whatever, uh, whatever coins they like, right? And for individuals, if they think, okay, well, I mean, you think about it, there's 9,000 cryptocurrencies, right? Or more right now. So you could get $9,000 and you could put one in each different cryptocurrency and then you've got... You should also like weigh weigh them by probability that you think yeah. like ones that have a higher probability should probably have a little bit more on the real like highly unlikely ones you might only put a few cents in and just say like they would have a long way to excuse me they would have a long way to grow as well right yeah. you know <laughs> exactly so yeah I'm I'm not a I like of those nine thousand dollars how many how many would you put into Bitcoin Cash this is where I'm no comment. Which is not. This is not financial advice. I'm not, not advice. I, I can't, you know, to, well, to, I think to me, my understanding or my investing uh, philosophy is based around the idea that people should invest in cryptocurrency. There's this me like sort of idea that is often said they shouldn't invest more than they uh, can afford to lose. I don't, that's a good thing to tell to somebody who doesn't know anything about cryptocurrency. But to me, the way I think about it is you shouldn't invest more than you understand, which is that if you don't know much about cryptocurrency, you buy $1, well, that's about right. But if you've got a dollar and you start thinking, wait, what is this about? And then you read a little bit more and you understand, okay, what, what are the prospects for this to become the future? Or you do some trade with it, or you go to some meetups and you meet some people and you get involved in the community and then... I don't know, maybe you start accepting it at your business or you ask your boss to pay you in it or whatever. At each step, as you get more and more involved in it, then you can sort of allocate more and more of your resources to it because the real risk is to put a significant amount of money into it but have no idea what's going on with it because in that way, if it all goes pear-shaped, you're going to have no idea what happened. Your money's just... You know, whether you lose the keys or whether you pick the wrong coin and suddenly it goes to zero or whether you get scammed or like a million different things. You put it all in Satoshi Pyramid, like <laughs> whatever it is, it sort of comes down to how much you under, understand it. But you can, those two things are a virtuous cycle where if you get a little bit, then you'll get interested and then you'll read up about it and then you could feel confident that you know what was going on or you're prepared to experiment a little more. And then you get a bit more crypto. And then once you see how it's all working as time goes on and you, you know, I don't know, you, yeah, you listen to this podcast or you get, there's a million resources out there about cryptocurrency. As you get more interested, then you can put more money into it. So that's my, uh, that, <laughs> that, that is my non-financial advice, which is invest only as much as you understand. And obviously do your research and raise the amount that you understand if you, if you feel you want to do that. Okay, so anyway, that, that's very interesting. It leads me to my next question. Do you think this necessarily has to be a natural monopoly? Like, could could it end up being that there's, like, all the Spanish-speaking world end up on one coin and all the English-speaking world ends up, or all the developed world ends up on one coin and then maybe, you know, or, you know, that basically ends up as, as, like, a couple of coins sort of, you know, just like when we fly at the moment, if we fly to China, we, we would convert some money into the yuan. Uh, or the Remimbi, um, uh, you know, but do you think it would ever be that, you know, you fly to a certain country and you're like, oh, I've got to switch coins? Yes and yes and no. I don't 
when I say like Bitcoin Cash is going to be the global reserve currency, my philosophy is that it will be the biggest coin, but obviously it's not going to be that literally every other of the 9,000 cryptocurrencies are all going to go exactly to zero. And like, you know, that it's not going to work that way. While there will be, uh, a, there will be a biggest coin by the virtue of those network effects, but because also we're in a world now where anybody can create a crypto, yeah, there will be uh, a spread of different cryptos. So I think among the major commerce and, and whatever, probably it will all tend onto one network, but you can also think about maybe we end up in a situation where there's already services like sideshift.ai, for instance, where you send in one coin and it sends out another coin to another address, right? So let's say if I, like on this podcast, people can donate in Bitcoin Cash, right? So I don't actually accept Ethereum or Monero or BTC or whatever. But if anybody who has any of those currencies wants to donate to me, they can go on that service, pick whatever their favorite coin is, put the output as Bitcoin Cash to my address, and then send in whatever coins they want, and then the donation comes out to me, right? And as we see those services get more and more advanced, more and more liquidity, more and more integrated into point of sale systems and so on and so forth, people will be able to hold whatever currency they want and then just send it off to, you know, they'll just be, maybe somebody will develop a universal little scan code that you can scan and it has embedded into it, you know, which network you're on and how to convert from one to the other. And then it just all happens seamlessly behind the scenes. So then it won't really matter what you're accepting or what I'm accepting or what our favorite cryptos are. It would just be scanned to pay and all the conversion is done automatically behind the scenes. But then once you have that kind of scenario, the money again rapidly will sort of all pile into whichever one is the most uh, reliable or accepted because you could say, well, I my favorite currency is Monero, so I'm going to hold all my coins in Monero. But if everybody else, all the economic activity and growth is happening in Bitcoin Cash, then my ratio of Monero to Bitcoin Cash value is going to be going down over time. Even if I can just, you know, seamlessly transfer across like the BTC and BCH ratio that we were talking about before. If you have one dominant coin where most of the economic activity is happening, well, that will be growing faster and producing more, you know, innovation and et cetera than everything else. And so holding any other coin, you're just kind of like, I'm missing out because my coin's getting less valuable over time. Just like how now, if you hold fiat currencies, your fiat currencies are getting less valuable over time against cryptos, because even though there's a boom and bust cycle, on average, you're, you know, if averaged out over a 10 year period, your $1 is going to buy a lot less crypto than it did at the start kind of thing. Right, right. Okay, so there's your network. So there's two different network effects. One, you can to buy it and sell it or use it for transactions. But then there's the other thing of like the more people that join the network, the more valuable the network becomes. It's very, yeah, very, very interesting. Okay. So those are, those are sort of like the, some of the positive, um, like use, uh, you know, a, a country using it as their national currency. That's like a positive. Can I give you like, um, sort of dystopian? Yep. Let's hear it. All right. So instead of, we'll forget that tomorrow, you know, Ecuador or someone adopts it as a national currency. Let's now think the, the opposite. Um, uh, the, the ghost of, uh, oh no, I've got to think about carefully how to word this so I don't get in trouble. Yeah. Imagine if someone did um, something uh, uh, that was um, highly illegal and, yeah. and 
and was very destructive um, to to um, to a country. And they yeah. financed it uh, using, you know, I'm, I'm avoiding using the keywords. That yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yep. So there's yep. some adversarial situation against a large nation state. Yep. Yep. And and they didn't, you know. Bitcoin or, or blockchain or Bitcoin Cash weren't like key to this, but they use it as a way to finance it. And you know, like one of the one of the things that the United States government does to stop to stop um, these sorts of attacks uh, is is they control the money and they can have they have controls on the money. And and you know, it might sound crazy, but like, well, anyway, um, uh, I'm still like filtering things out of my brain as to think about the right way to say this. Um, so. So if that if they use if they use cryptocurrencies and then you know an uneducated public was like right we need action we want to stop it now work through what you think what like if the US just went went nuclear on this and decided they're going to throw everything they can they've got the current the current financial system at their disposal um, they've got like a lot of bully power around the world like what would be the most extreme thing and what like the most extreme what what's like what's the what's the end game and just I don't know I haven't really thought this all through so I'm wondering if, like, if you have thoughts on what would happen in that sort of scenario. Yeah, so it is it is hard to say, but uh, there's a few sort of important points to to think about. So one is that geopolitical power is naturally self reinforcing. It's kind of like uh, miners in. The Bitcoin network, right? Which is that the largest countries in the world, let's say the US, Russia, China, they have more influence over things than other countries. But none of them, even the US, can do anything too egregious because if the US does anything that gets 80% of the rest of the world offside, well, that's, they're still the minority, right? So no, because it's all distributed like that, the US can make some moves but it has to do things that it at least some countries are willing to kind of back it up on or, you know, that because uh, there's always a shifting balance, right? So any country can exert some influence in some areas, but the more it tries to exert influence in other things, the more space some other currents, you know, countries doing its own agenda, right? So it does sort of play out like that. So as the as a country, the more that it went to war with cryptocurrency, the higher that raises the incentive for every other country to take the opposite side of the deal, right? If you are the US and you go, I'm going all out, I hate crypto, I'm going to do everything I can to stop it. If you're China or Russia, that like massively raises the stakes on we're going to be a crypto haven. And like, because then all of the industry, all of the innovation, all of the technology all flood into your country and boost your own economy and your own uh, you know, state of affairs, right? And because cryptocurrency is naturally based around the internet and it is very uh, decentralized and spread about, it has a way of finding its way into the little nooks and crannies, you know? Wherever there is an opening, that's where it start. that's where it grows because nobody's in, like this podcast, for, you know, is an example of that, right? If you were like, well, look, we've got to shut down cryptocurrency so we've got to stop education from happening. There's a thousand YouTube channels about cryptocurrency. There's podcasts, people talk about it at meetups. There's, you know, people everywhere just going on with it. So there's no, and there's no coordination. There's no consistent theme. 
there's it's it's like trying to fight the ocean you know there's there's no way to just take a bucket down to the ocean and just you know sweep back the waves or anything like it just it doesn't work like that so obviously a, a large country could do a massive amount of damage if they wanted to but uh ultimately you know cryptocurrency is uh anti-fragile which is that the more pressure you put on it the more it sort of hardens up and adapts so that that same kind of attack won't work right so like for instance it was only uh you know bitcoin had problems with being sort of only semi-anonymous so that some you know governments could track on the blockchain who was doing what and whatever and as once the community became aware of this problem and that the government was tracking people and so on what did they do they developed more anonymous coins like monero and zcash and cash fusion on bitcoin cash and uh different things like that right or well bitcoin was the largest coin it had most of the uh market cap so then you know the when the development team became a, a problem in that they were sort of blockading pro progress with the one megabyte block size limit what happened the market split up into all these other different coins where now there's a hundred dev teams all doing their own approaches their own organizations their own philosophies or whatever and the market just adjusts around among them right so in that in that sense uh you know cryptocurrency is is kind of uh quite unstoppable so that's point one right point two is that like we talked about before the incentive is for everybody to join and then sort of is it then in their incentive to spread it to other people so if the us wants to go to war with cryptocurrency today like we saw up to you know 20 or 30 percent of their population already owns cryptocurrency and that will be immensely unpopular and that's not even just talking about 20 percent of everybody but 20 percent of the people in the government who are the ones making the laws about this stuff who are in the position to say ah you know i think i'll just vote against this uh let's go to war with cryptocurrency stuff because i've got some bitcoin and i don't want to you know i don't want to sell it right so there's sort of just this constant opportunism even within the system of sort of defectors right which is that any any centralized thing trying to attack cryptocurrency whether it's a company or a government uh struggles with the fact that even the you know even as they ramp up the pressure individual members of the system are silently thinking yeah but what if this doesn't work i i need to make sure i'm looking out for myself you know like a, it's sort of a coordination prisoner's dilemma. Uh, so then we've got the third point, which is that governments are busy. And I talked about this in the in the previous uh, episode, number 20, about government control. I don't know if you've watched that, but you might like that as well. But it's a point that you don't uh, think about intuitively, but it's that even though governments are big, they've got a lot on their mind. They are, you know need to worry about the healthcare. They need to worry about education they need to worry about infrastructure you know there's political protests of all kinds right like with lockdowns we've seen that or with black and lives matter or pandemics you know whatever it is like you know the trump capital riots or you know yeah, yeah. free it's hong kong or there's a million things in the government and everybody knows governments are they're big but they're slow and they're inefficient they're not you know quick and adaptable so the government can say look we're going to crack down on cryptocurrency and they're going to spend, you know, a, a month thinking we're going to focus on crypto and, you know, whatever they're going to do. But then eventually something else is going to come up that's going to be a priority. 
And then guess what? They're going to be focused on that. And the cryptocurrency community is still going to be focused on cryptocurrency. That, you know, the crypto community has every day to fight the battle for crypto. The government only has one out of every 10 days to fight the battle back. But it's funny to say that because, like, the US government, how long did they try to ban alcohol for? Prohibition. Yeah, I don't know the history of all that. But it was like, it was like seven or eight years, I think, or something. Wasn't it? It was in the 20s, right? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and then the other thing, uh, like the war on drugs, you know, that's, they throw in huge amounts of effort there and they're still not doing a very good job. You know, yeah. that's another one of these anti-fragile things, right? People are, the, the harder, the more difficult you make it, the the, the price goes up and then people are going to make more effort to, to circumvent the, ne- the measures. Um, so uh, it's interesting though, you know, what what you said is, is, is completely has panned out over 60 or more years, maybe, um, you know, the war on drugs. Yeah. And probably a whole lot more. I don't, I don't know the history there. Um, but the government's still throwing, you know, putting a pretty big effort into that. <laughs> it's not working though. I mean, yeah, ultimately because, you know, like the U S can be against cocaine or whatever, but uh, like I've said many times on this show, I do not know for a fact, I don't have no personal experience in this regard, but I'm pretty sure that if, if you want to get high in the States, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, right? And that's in the US, like globally, there's a lot of places in the world where it's much, much easier than in the US. And that's for drugs, like let's even say hard drugs that a minor, like what, 5% of the population maybe are super interested in, but in money, everyone is interested in that. Everybody uses money. So the, you know, the, if you can't fight something that, you know, even 5% of people are willing to, you know, adjust their life around, how are you going to fight something that a hundred percent of people are willing to adjust their life around? That is a very interesting point. I hadn't thought of that. Very interesting. All yep. right. Do you have, do you have another scenario? Uh, <laughs> that I had jotted down that I just thought were just super interesting and uh, and I wanted to pick your brain about. Yeah, no, that was that was good. That was that was fun. Uh, I I enjoyed that. So yeah, we've got uh, just we'll, we'll you know move on and sort of get to the end of the show then. So I, I do every yeah meme of the week. Uh, I enjoy this. You know, you got to have a bit of uh, humor in your life. So this uh, week's meme of the week comes from at Michaela Arouet on Twitter. And she made a tweet and the title is perfect picture of 2021 investors. And then the image is it's a cartoon of uh, a cliff with the lemmings, the you know famous animals that all sort of mass suicide off cliffs and they're all lining up and they're all running to the edge of the cliff. And then when they get to the cliff, instead of falling off into the water, like you'd expect, they're all sort of flying up into the sky and the caption is what lemmings believe. So, the, you know, taken together, it's kind of the idea that, yeah, in 2021, everybody has convinced themselves that <laughs> if they all charge in with the herd and all dive off a cliff, well, they're all going to the moon, <laughs> even though uh, the reality is probably they're going to crash and burn into the, into the water. And I just felt this was so funny in the context of what we we're talking about with the Bitcoin Miami context in terms of Satoshi, you know, pyramid in terms of like AMC and GME, like the meme stocks that are going on at the moment, the whole crypto casino. It's just, it's just so funny that 
it is true that everybody is getting the sense of, oh, I can get rich or I can be the smartest one or whatever when they're generally stampeding with the herd uh, and maybe, you know, they're going to make or lose money. But the, the real crux of the argument is that the existing financial system is so screwed up that even <laughs> no matter how dodgy, you know, AMC or GME stocks are or cryptocurrencies, if they're volatile and have a lot of problems, they're still better than fiat currencies as the, as the world uh, financial system really uh, melts down. And that's, you know, so anyway, this made me laugh. All right, cool. And then, uh, yeah, so just have pretty much the second last slide here. So you've listened to a few of the other episodes. So I guess you, you know the drill. There's uh, yeah, a message to the community. Just I've got some listeners. They're interested in Bitcoin Cash. You know a little bit about you know crypto or Bitcoin Cash from your perspective, from your vantage point. What, what, what is the community doing right, wrong? What do they need to hear? Yeah. I mean, I don't have a whole lot to say on this, but I'll, I'll use it to, to plug that um, the little lecture that I yeah. gave. Everything I said then, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but everything I said about that is completely applicable to Bitcoin Cash. In in fact, in the way that you know you've often said before, Bitcoin Cash is Bitcoin. Yeah. This is this is based off the white paper. Everything that I said, except you know, may, maybe one or two um, slip ups, but uh. Um, and in the same way that the, the Bitcoin cash is based on that white paper. So everything I've said there applies to this. Yeah. So I'll put a link to that in the description. Do you know what the name of it off the top of your head? So people can search it up on uh, YouTube if they're. I think I put something really generic, like intro to, to Bitcoin or intro to blockchain. I, yeah, I don't. All right. Well, we'll put it, we'll put a link in the, in the description there and, uh, yeah, if you're listening to the audio uh, feed of this podcast, you can you can just go on YouTube, search up the Bitcoin Cash podcast episode 21, click that, and then the the link will be in the description box. But yeah, I do highly highly recommend it. That was how uh, Oliver came on the show was that I was watching his uh, video and sort of saying, "Oh yeah, good job." You know, that was a really good educational uh, content, and I'm I'm glad to see it because that's the key point about this all is the decentralization of, of information is the most unstoppable part of, of cryptocurrency, right? Uh, is that, yeah, I don't know, the, like you were saying about those doomsday scenarios, you know, the government, yeah, maybe it can stop me, maybe it can stop you, maybe it can stop someone else, but it can't stop everyone. So the word is getting out there and, you know, we're seeing, uh, seeing kind of the results of that. So, yeah, just one last little bit of news for the podcast is that I had people you know, giving me feedback saying, okay, <laughs> these episodes are pretty long. Like this one's going to be definitely well over two hours, uh, which I don't mind because I like that it's a long sort of episodes. People can listen to them in segments or, you know, if they're on their long commute or working out at the gym or whatever, I really like long podcasts. So I don't mind, uh, you know, producing long podcasts. But on the other hand, uh, sometimes you need just some short, sharp uh bits of info and especially on YouTube and other platforms where people have short attention spans. Um, a lot of bigger creators, they do chop up sort of the best of little two or three minute segments and put them up there as well uh, for people who don't have all day to listen to this stuff. So I've created a new channel called BCH Clips. Again, link will be in the description. 
And uh, if you've been following my channel and enjoying it, uh, you know, you can subscribe to that too and catch up on some of the hits from the previous episodes if you don't have time to watch them all, uh, that kind of thing as well too. So that pretty much does it then for the show. So people can donate as ever, scan the QR code, peer-to-peer -peer cash, it's all pretty easy. Uh, thank you to all the donators on the previous episodes. Love you all very much. Uh, really, really appreciate it. The slides and resources for the show are at bitcoincashpodcast.com. Um, and yeah, is there anyone you want to, to shout out? Do you have like, obviously uh, that YouTube video, we'll, we'll link to that stuff, but do you have you know anybody you want to mention specifically or a Twitter handle that people can follow you, anything like that? No, no, um, it just, um, maybe, do, you, do we want to shout out if you're in London, you should come to the, the meetups there? Yeah, absolutely. So that's the, uh, well, it was Cryptocurrency 101, but then it was 102. I don't know if we've had 103 yet, but that must be on the cards, what, this weekend, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, come along and check out that uh, group. I'll, again, link will be in the description uh for on meetup.com if you're in london and you want to chat to me or oliver uh I, I mean i should be there i guess i was going to go for a bike ride actually on sunday so i might end up missing this week but i can highly recommend anyway this uh group it's run by a guy called will and i've had a blast at the last two meetups and really you know it's a great spread of people there's all kinds of uh, you know, people from different industries, people have all their different favorite coins. I've talked to people who've been into mining, you know, people that are more into trading, people who are more into sort of the philosophy of it or, you know, have ideological reasons to be involved. And yeah, it's just always a good time. So uh, head along and uh, find a lot of other people, uh, you know, in the same boat as you that, that are interested in cryptocurrency, right? It's a crowd that's getting bigger and bigger all the time so yeah that that pretty much uh does it then mate thanks thanks for coming on the show and uh until next time yeah it's been a lot of fun thanks man he pulled out his laptop and rang up the site no dabby he said this will change your whole life and he started explaining the basics to me the miners make money by taking the fee every time a transaction is made incomplete and they work every minute and day of the week a guy named satoshi created this all he's the mastermind of it the brain in the ball there's a lot more to say but before i begin just tell me right now if you're out or you're in